0: My mom was like, well, here's the keys. We were going to give you the card when you graduated. You should do that in the trash. Here's your credit card. You cut it up in front of my face. Like, everything oh. that they were going to give me for graduating high school, they basically took took away from me. And they were like, you got one week after you graduate to get out of this house. Put that coffee down. That's a clown question, bro.
1: Then here we go. Another episode of off script with LZEL. What's up, dude? What's going on? How you doing? I'm fantastic. I am fantastic, man. I now I didn't just come off a vacation of, of hiking in Colorado, but, uh, but I'm still, you know, living the coronavirus dream, just, uh, living that unemployed life, uh, trying to, trying to, Um, convince myself that having been out of work for the last, what is it? Five months. Uh, you know, no big deal. No big deal. We'll get through it. We'll get through it. So you're officially unemployed. I've been unemployed since, uh, yeah, since I guess December of 2018.
2: Do you have unemployment like benefits as an actor? How does that work?
1: Yes, you do have unemployment benefits. Uh, you can file for unemployment, uh, of course, uh, through the government. Um, or you, you know, I, I, I ended up going a different route. I, I applied for the loan, the small business loan because I'm a corporation. So, oh, uh, wow. But in, instead of going through unemployment, but, uh, you, of course you can, you can file for unemployment. Yeah.
2: So it, it works the same way, but you're, since you are uh, what, uh, you're a corporation, your own, Right. can we know what your holding company's called? Like, is it called germies or like, what's the name of your corporation? Do you have a cool name? No, California Cowboy or, like, oh, God, that would have been so. I need a. I,
1: it's too late in the game to switch my name, but I feel right. like that I should have. I should have consulted you because I yeah. feel like you could come up with some good ones. I like California Cowboy. Maybe just uh, Cali Hat.
2: Yeah, I mean something like that. I think there's a lot of different. There's a lot of different directions you could have gone with it.
1: Don't Shake Entertainment.
2: Yeah, that's pretty good. Do you uh Purel
1: Productions? Purel Productions.
2: Productions is a good one. For those right. who missed the last episode, you really need to go back and listen because I found out just what a a germaphobe you are. In fact, my wife after she finished listening, she really liked it. She got to it today. We are actually recording today. It's been out for a week. So last night as you know, I put her on the phone and basically put her on blast to ask why it took this long to get to our podcast. Uh, since she said she supports the podcast. But she used a word with you once she heard all of your little things that you do. Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. uh, I you don't like Airbnbs. Mm-hmm. You try to gussy up what I call gussying up a, a hotel room, things like that.
1: Ooh. By the way, gussy up productions. Okay, go ahead.
2: It's not bad. It's okay. not bad. I've got a lot of them. Okay. Um, She used a word with you that I haven't heard in some time. Maybe the word hasn't even been uttered since maybe the 40s. Persnickety, ooh, persnickety pictures. Persnickety. Yes. I like
1: this. Okay, okay. I'm gonna actually. She said call Eric my...
2: came off as a little persnickety about all of his his germ stuff. I said right, and I said, what exactly do we mean by that, though?
1: Well, I think persnickety is a word that pretty much sells itself. I don't feel like you really have to dig deep into what the meaning of that word is. And I'm like, yes, if if. um if there were a remake of The Odd Couple and I was in it, we know what character I'd play,
2: and we know a character we, I'd sh- play.
1: We'd sure know what slob sloth character you'd play, you filthy
2: I, animal. So, have you seen the? I've told so many people about this show. It's absolutely brilliant comedy. It's based on that same concept. It's called Peep Show, mm-hmm. and it comes out of uh, it comes out of England. Um, I don't, I don't know if it was BBC Four or whatever. It's one of those channels. But it is fantastic. They have – it's the same guys who do that mit, that, Mitchell and, that Mitchell and Ness look or something like that. Um, but the two characters, one is very upright and, you know, he's he's very much the – Is the he Felix. persnickety? He is persnickety, 100%. Okay. And the other guy, Jez, is just out of control. He's the complete and total opposite. He is the Oscar of The Odd Couple. And if you haven't seen this show – I know you can see it. I think it's on Netflix right now, either Netflix or Hulu. You can watch watch every season that they had. I want to say they had nine, maybe 10 seasons, and it is fantastic comedy. If you like Ricky Gervais, if you like Larry David, if you like that kind of cringe comedy, you'll absolutely love Peep Show. It is a smart show, and it's really well-written, and it's great. Like the... um, Oh wow here. Ninety ninety
1: six percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh yeah. Yeah, eight and a half on uh on
2: IMDB. Yeah, this yeah. looks like uh Thanks for checking up right. on me. Thanks for yeah. checking up on my recommendations though.
1: I appreciate yeah, you it. You know, I mean listen, I'm I'm i like to do a little research here, quick just a quick bite, yeah. quick bite of research. Um I don't have all day. I don't sit in my bed half naked in the heat. And eating eating okay. Cheetos, watching TV. So we're
2: going to play a game called "Raise Your Hand" if you are working two jobs right now. Okay, yeah, I'm okay, raising a list hand. for the listener. You are
1: the only one raising his hand.
2: I raised my hand. Now raise your job. Raise your hand if you just got done telling us how Persnickety Pictures is getting a PPP loan. Oh, look, it's you. <laughs> yeah, I, <didn't laughs> no, it's, I would not undersell the amount of time you have. I wouldn't undersell that. <laughs>
1: okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I hear what you, I hear what you're saying.
2: I still have to finish uh, my defensive rookie of the year article I'm doing for NFL.com right now. I'm in the middle of writing that. So after our podcast taping is done, I will go finish my odds of winning the 2020 NFL rookie of the year, which could also be entitled. Odds that there will be an NFL season 2020? And if so, who will be the good defensive players?
1: Who's your leader in the clubhouse?
2: Uh, Chase Young, Ohio State. You know, Ohio State's won three of the last four defensive rookie of the year awards. And then my offensive rookie of the year, I wrote that article yesterday with one of my two jobs. And uh, it was Joe Burrow was the rookie of the year I came up with, number one. Number two was Clyde edwards Allaire, the running back who from LSU, also another one year wonder like Joe Burrow um, and Clyde Edwards. Alaire was the last pick of the first round with the Kansas City Chiefs. Speaking of the Chiefs. Oh, wow. So, you know, what's funny, though. So Pat. So Pat Mahomes just got a deal that's called a 10 year, five hundred and three million dollar deal. But right. the reality is agents, I've talked to three different agents today and they Mm -hmm. say the deal sucks. They were killing the deal. They said in terms of how the deal is structured, the new money, the upfront guarantee, they said, Lance, this deal is not even better. It's barely better than Ryan Tannehill's and it's not better than Kirk Cousins. And they thought the deal was a terrible deal. Now, what you see online is 10 years, half a billion, but that's not really what it is.
1: Of course. No, they frame it in a way that, you know, that's, that's also if probably every single bonus marker is met, that's if, you know, if it actually takes the 12 years to if he sees it through the 12 years, I mean, clearly it's not actually going to be half a billion dollars, but, um, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) no matter how you read it, it still seemed like a shitload of money to me.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not like it's not good money. It's just relative to the last three or four deals made, it was not nearly, I guess, what the agent community thought it was. Uh, it was going to be, but now, you know, I, I wondered at least a little bit if there wasn't a rush to get a deal done because of concern about, hey, you know, what happened if something, God forbid, were to happen to Pat Mahomes? Why not? Why not before we start this twenty twenty season? And there's no vaccine. Why not get something on the books that has him getting over 140 million guaranteed if something happens due to injury or illness, whatever the case may be. So,
1: yeah, I mean, listen, no matter when you're getting 140 guaranteed, that's there's no bad time to sign a contract that guarantees you 140 million dollars. There's never a bad time for that.
2: You're never too early. It's only on injury, though. Like if he doesn't play well he doesn't get the 140, but every time that comes up to me, I'm like, are we really going to be waiting yeah. on Pat Mahomes not to play? Well, is that what we're waiting on? I, I who did, who did,
1: sorry, switching gears. I want to go back though. Cause I forgot who did chase young go to Washington, Washington. Okay. You yeah. might as well call him Washington. Cause yeah, they Reds, don't know. We don't, don't know what they is, are.
2: Yeah. That's over. That's done. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Indians are done.
2: I think so. Um, yeah. I, I'm trying to see if there's a way for us Braves? to jackhammer. No, the Braves are gonna be they're sticking around. Braves are already saying we work with the Native American community. We feel very honored to honor them. I think the Braves are not going anywhere. Indians, it feels like there's momentum for that to be erased. And then um so very Redskins. Slippery,
1: very slippery slope, though, when you're you're allowing Braves but not allowing Indians and not allowing redskins. Am I right?
2: Well, I, so Redskins, I feel like, is probably considered more of a... Uh, derogatory? Yeah, derogatory for sure. And then Indians, sure. we know that the name comes from Christopher Columbus thinking he had discovered, you know, India. This is Indians. Right. Th- that, that name has gone out anyway. Now, Braves, I think Braves is something... It, it is going to be interesting because I think every Native American group is going to be targeted every native american team logo mascot whatever the case may be um so we'll see what happens if anything happens with the chiefs we'll see what happens with the braves uh the blackhawks. florida state seminole chicago blackhawks yeah i've seen an article where people started bringing their names up so we'll see what happens here
1: uh you know who's not changing their name are the trojans
2: no no usc trojans yeah yeah or i the think beavers. those beavers Beavers are sticking around. I'm offended yeah. by it, but Beavers are sticking around. Right. What what offends you about Beavers? I'm not, okay. taking, the, I'm not taking the bait on that. Okay.
1: What about with cla- the Trojans? What about with the Trojans <laughs> play the Beavers?
2: I mean, I feel like there's a lot of action involved. You know, it's going to yeah. be high scoring. Uh, you know, it's going to be a grind. Yeah. And, and you, know, you know, ultimately,
1: know? the Trojans will stick it to the Beavers.
2: Yeah, I think, yeah, usually, usually in case the defense, I mean, unless the defense is a sieve and really, you know, unless, unless you're able to penetrate that defensive front. And if that's the case, then, you know, it's, it can be quick work.
1: Yeah. And, you know, hopefully nobody's shaving points. You're right. Right. You, uh, and you get an honest, honest game there. Yeah. Or
2: maybe you hope they are.
1: I don't know. I I guess that's a preference. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: I'm not for shaving points per se. What about trimming them?
1: (laughs) I love your face. Yeah. I
2: I think we were, you know, I, I think we were clever there for a while. And then you stepped over, and landing. you stepped over uh, the invisible line. I know an you were acting about class. To say,
1: by the way, you were about to say you stepped over the landing strip. <laughs> no, I was not going to
2: say that. I was not going to say that at all, Eric. Oh my god, did I tell you? Um, you know, you know this for a fact because I had to text you in the middle of a hike. I just got back from Colorado. Just beautiful. There's some spots in Colorado that are just incredible. Mm-hmm. And in the summer you know, we were in Colorado Springs. It was, it got a little warmer. When I say warmer upper eighties, I mean, it wasn't terrible at all, but when we went to Dillon, which is near Frisco and Keystone, and I guess it's an area near Breckenridge or something like that. The weather's in the seventies all the time, except in, in the evening, you know, I dropped down in the fifties at one night. It was in the upper forties, but, um, God, the, just the weather just to be in, June and July weather in the 70s was great. We had a a, a lot of fun doing outdoor activities, things like that. But one of the things that that we all had to do and that I had to do more than the kids was hike. And so I I think this is fair to say. I I don't think this is unfair to say. It feels like, and you tell me if I'm generalizing here, because I might be generalizing. I, I don't like to generalize. I feel like white people kind of have cornered the market on the hiking world or in in the hiking game as it were like I could see different people saying now my wife is Mexican so maybe that's not fair but I feel like they could say yeah the hiking game is kind of it's kind of what we do you're a hiker you hike as it were
1: I I um you dabble I know yeah, I don't know that I'd consider myself a hiker. I mean, I think if you're a hiker, you've got like hiking gear. I don't really necessarily have any hiking gear.
2: I have no I, hiking I don't gear.
1: Have, yeah.
2: Um, do you have special I, shoes that you wear when you hike?
1: I have hiking boots that are pretty mm. well worn in. Um, I, mm, I Sounds were, very hikey. It is. It's hikey. But I mean, I also got those from a job that I had to do a lot of hiking. So, uh, you know, so they were... And I didn't go out. Now I do love a, a good trip to REI, and I do like. I'm getting more into camping. Now I know what you're going to say. When you camp, you typically hike. Um, I I don't know that to be true. I don't know that. So I like to camp out of my car more than like so drive somewhere great. Even if it's like an off road, you know, get you know if if you got a four by four to to get there. But I'd rather camp out of my car than necessarily hike
2: in and camp. Um, what does this mean, camp out of your car? What do you mean?
1: Well, find somewhere that you can essentially, you know, I mean, I can put all the stuff in my car and I can drive somewhere. I might be able to drive to, you know, any any campground. Uh, wh- wh- however remote it is, if I can get there with my with my car, my truck, then essentially park it and then camp out of that. So in other words, you can you can carry everything in your car as opposed to hiking in, backpacking in. You know, c- camping out of a pack where I have to put all the stuff that I'm going to use in a backpack. Um so that that's all I mean. You know, that way you can have a stovetop, you can have different things that you wouldn't be able to carry uh in a backpack or at least as big
2: as I'd like to. So I I thought you meant, and this is kind of how I would have meant it, the ability to lean your seat all the way back and sleep Mm. in your car. Like camping your car, meaning I'm going to keep my car on, the air conditioning on. I don't want to be around mosquitoes or bugs. I mean really doing it the softest way possible, which would be camping in your car. Like not – you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, you could do that.
1: Like you could do that. A lot of people do that here in Los Angeles in Venice.
2: No, that's not, that's not called camping though. There's city ordinances against people who are doing that. You mean the ones who just move it off the street when the street sweepers come and go to a new place? That's what I mean. Yeah. Is that camping though? I don't feel like that's camping.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, they allow it. So, uh, I guess it is.
2: Does the census count that as campers? You
1: know, I don't know if they actually uh, – I don't know that they have a mailbox or a uh, P.O. box. So unless they're getting mail, I don't know that they're actually going to be counted in the census. The campers. The campers. Um, I I do like to hike, though. I will – going back to what you asked, I, I do like to hike. Um, I can see the value in a good hike. I like to be outside. I like to be physical. And I have found that over this year, 2020, I have found the urge to be outside more Um, whether it be at the beach, whether it be camping, whether it be hiking, bike riding, swimming, whatever it is outside more often than not. I think a lot of that too has to come. I have two boys who just have endless motors. So getting them outside, doing that kind of stuff is, is important too.
2: But you also are in the middle of a pandemic. You're not working. I mean, all of it, you've got great weather. It all, it all comes together for you. Now the hiking thing. So with the kids, it could be a little bit of a a chore because they would think it's boring. And look, I get it. For kids, and I try to explain this to my wife, they loved doing the, the stuff that were activities. Canoeing, they loved it. The downhill bicycle route that we took, it was a 12-mile bicycle route where you're primarily downhill, so you don't even barely pedal. I mean, you're just hands on the brake the whole time. It was so much fun. Um, they loved all that kind of stuff. Hiking to them is like, what do what we we're just why am I going on a walk? What's fun about going on a walk? And so let me just say this. Hiking is fine. And there are times I like hikes too. Sometimes I think my wife just put just would put us. It was a very passive aggressive move where she had an app on her phone, and I truly believe that she would pick out a, a trail that would be because one time we got in a little bit of a an argument before our hike. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed that the hiking trail we went to, um, I'd say it was about 50 degrees upwards. It was just a, <laughs> an incline for about a mile and a half. And it was on nothing but big clunky rocks. Like it was a, it was a twisted ankle waiting to happen or mm-hmm. torn up ACL. And as I'm going up now, mind you, I'm, I'm only in Colorado about, you know, one hundred and fifty thousand. Uh, feet above uh, sea level the altitude mm-hmm. is just grabbing my lungs and squeezing as hard as they can and all i could think of is like fuck hiking that's what i that's what i thought of initially mm-hmm. when i was texting you um now when it levels out mm-hmm. and i'm not like walking up rock steps basically for a mm-hmm. mile and a half well mm-hmm. then oh yeah camping's great camping's great once it levels off and i have just slight ups and downs, slight ups and downs. But when I'm going, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Is that real hiking? Because I was doing some mountain climbing, like the old, um, price is right. Where the guys, and he's going up the hill. That's what I was doing. Yeah. That's what I was doing.
1: You were the, you were the price is right. Yodeling guy. Um, I appreciate that. But so you believe that Nicole, was using this as a bit of a power move just to to show
2: just to show dominance over the family well it was over me the kids weren't on this hike and i told them they didn't have to go because i knew this one was going to be a longer one Mm -hmm. this we anticipated now i only had a certain amount of time i could go in for an hour and 10 minutes and then i had to go back out for an hour and 10 minutes because i had to then drive the kids to go ziplining it was me it was my job so it was a tight schedule
1: Right. Okay. Okay. So this was a, this was a pure power move. This was her peeing on a tree, just saying like, this is where I excel. This is where I know I have an advantage over you. And I just need you to, I need you to see this and I need to see it for myself. It's basically Nicole's, that's her mentality.
2: Listen, I can tell you that's a hundred percent what was kind of going on. She would always say, we need to get a going on a real hike, a 4-hour hike. And I thought, 4 hours, get the fuck out. Of it. That's a hike, a 4 and 5-hour hike, a 6-hour hike. Like that's not a Now maybe if you open up a bag of food and you're sitting there eating and it becomes a picnic, uh, you know, whatever. You're hanging out down at the waterfalls or running water. All right, you know, as long as you're counting that. If I'm walking the whole way, I can tell you this. I burned up Fitbit said I burned up on one of our hikes 1300 calories That's which I feel like I feel like that was a pretty decent hike that one was 2 hours and 50 minutes total mm-hmm. and so the hiking thing yeah I mean it's fine I could do it I wasn't going to let her beat me I wasn't going to let her break me mentally but I did feel like there are times where she tries to she wants to see if she can make me break like she wants what? to say I think we should take a 5 hour hike and I'm like you're trying to make me break is all you're doing right here I'm not going to break But but really like the hiking, what about didn't you you didn't
1: enjoy the process? You enjoyed the vista when you got to the top, but you didn't enjoy the process of getting there.
2: No, I enjoy the process once it evens out. I don't like uphills. You want me to just tell you flat out? Uphills suck. Okay. Yeah, they do, but that's part of
1: it. I mean, you gotta get up to get the good the you know, to and to feel that sense of accomplishment. Like one of the greatest hikes. probably the greatest hike I've ever been on uh and I was made to go on it and we've talked about this but it was up in in uh, BC and it was two and a half days hiking probably 12 hours a day in the snow with snowshoes and uphill for the first probably uphill was about 75% of it is this when you were doing the seal training this is when I was doing SEAL training for six. Yeah. And I had moments where I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm, I'm an actor. Like, I can act like a Navy SEAL. I don't need a client. I I don't need to do this in order to deliver a performance that you're looking for, okay? <laughs> like, I don't need this. But I will say that when we got there to the the very top of where we were headed um, and looked out, the it was a it was a sense of accomplishment that I haven't felt um physically in a long time i mean i it truly you your body gets and by the way, I think I probably was able to have this and you weren't because you didn't go on a hard enough long enough hike so I had times during this two and a half day period where I was sure my body wouldn't go. And I was sure my body was just going to call it quits. But mentally, you know, I was like, nope, can't happen.
2: So and, who and, all was it? You set the scene like it was an all the cast of the show. So it was or- the
1: six guys who were in the show. And it was two of our technical advisors who were both ex-team um, guys. And basically, we went, prepped a whole day, outfitted ourselves, uh, put on backpacks, um, you know, got sleeping bags. We divvied out all the communal stuff that we needed, um, you know, gas and and uh stoves and things like that. And uh and we just started started walking, man. And and we got about three hours in, and this is in June in BC, and we saw a body of water and we kind of peel off, and they said, You take your packs off for a second, take a break. And then we were about to get going again. And they said, jump in the water. And I said, what the fuck is he talking about? He said, jump in the water. I said, we got to jump in this water. It's for, by the way, the water was probably, oh dude, it was probably 48, 50 degrees. I mean, it was freezing. So I started unlacing my shoes. They're like, no, no, no. Just jump in, man. We all all jump in, boots, like everything you're wearing except for the pack. And we tread water for, I don't know, probably two minutes. then we get out. They said, put your packs on, let's roll. So now you're in wet clothes, wet boots. And we hiked, you know, for another 10 hours that day. Uh, uh, And then once you get up high enough in altitude, you get in the snow, you got to throw the snowshoes on. And then you got to hike up, and we camped in the snow halfway up. And then the next day, we continued up for about half the day, or probably three quarters of the day, till we got to the the top. Um, And it was it was awesome. I will like you know, I just learned a lot about myself mentally. Uh, I think that was probably the number one thing I learned about myself on that hike was just mentally how much stronger your mind. If you want to, your body is so much stronger than you give it credit for. You know, like mentally is when you quit, but, but your mo your, your body is so
2: much stronger than you give it credit for. So what did you do once you were wet and you had to walk through and like, were you just freezing cold after that? Or did you had something that you could warm yourself with? No, you just go,
1: you just go, man. You just don't like, you just, you're just not a little bitch. You don't worry. About oh, okay,
2: okay. Okay. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Tough guy. Let me ask you this: You now you're fucking reliving it in your head. I can sense that you. <laughs> I mean, are thinking you're I'm, a, you're, a, I'm a tough guy now in your head. You're the fucking tough guy. I okay, well you're it. talking
1: about wrapping up in a little blankie. Like, no, you just put your pack yeah. on and you start going, dude. Your metabolism okay. kicks right. in and
2: eventually your clothes dry. Or there they were don't, eight like guys. Mine. There were eight guys, right? Yeah. Well, that plays we, a lot part into it too. Well, yeah, it's obviously you don't want to be the the bitch guy, so you win, right? But. But I'm going to ask you right now to be extremely honest. Of the eight, where would you rank yourself in a power ranking of toughest guys to the softest guy in the trip? Three. You were the third toughest. That's behind. I assume you're behind both of the guides. Yep. You were number one of that group. Hands down. Is this because of your history of being an astronaut and also you know generation kill i mean you've been a soldier kind of a soldier and kind of astronauts i think that
1: a couple of things played played a role in this one i was the new guy they had all worked together for an entire season um and so they didn't have as much to prove to each other as i had to prove to them yeah um and so that's probably why and i when i say toughest i i mean i didn't bitch once you know, like there was no there wasn't I wasn't going to allow and and really all the we all completed it. There was never a moment in which any of these guys didn't complete it. So truly, all of us are probably on the same playing field. There was one guy who had a, a knee issue, so that puts him a little bit behind. But in terms of and, and there's another dude, actually, a, a dude who's a legit hiker he camps and hikes a lot and he knows what the hell he's doing so he's right up there but no truly like I I had probably a little bit more to prove to all of these guys so I had to put myself in a mental state but you like how quick I put three out there
2: yeah I like that I like that you were number three I thought you'd say six tell Um, you who I wasn't I wasn't you I wasn't looking for blankets no (laughs) I was it's just a question because let me tell you there was no bitching whenever do you want to see the scratch on my leg that I got from the two hour and fifty one minute hike? No, it's pretty bad.
1: No, you put a little I neosporin
2: get, on it. Uh, no, just some water, just some water, mm-hmm. and a and a and a paper towel that my wife had. And you want to know how I got it? Rushing to set up a camera because my wife wanted to get a picture, so I put the timing function, um, yeah, of ten seconds, and I rushed over to get there in time. And after I, we got there and it took the picture. And after I was leaving, like moving around the log to go check and see what the picture looked like, huge gash in my leg. Ooh. So
1: yeah. You didn't even get it on the rush. You got it on the post photo.
2: No. Right, right. And then oh. I, I tough my way through it for an hour and 20 minutes back, um, through some, some bugs, you know, and mm-hmm. there was, there was also some really steep. Climbs back and some declines that were, were a you, little tricky. Um, any snow? Um not on this particular course.
1: Okay. No that so did. your regular shoes, no snowshoes.
2: Uh I was in some yeah,
1: ultra boost. Okay.
2: Okay. Um, and, and
1: your clothes were dry.
2: I didn't Yeah, it did start to sprinkle a little bit at one point. So That's I would nice. say, yeah, I would say that got kind of uncomfortable. Right. Um after a while, but uh no, I didn't jump in water. There wasn't snow. I would have, but we didn't have any. And then um I wish we would have had snow. We didn't. I wish we would have camped. We didn't. Um I would have done all those things, not a problem. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I just ran out. We just ran out of time. We ran out of right. sunlight. Zip lighting. No, this is the second one. This wow. is the second camping that was less contentious, the second hike. It was longer. And, uh, and less contentious. Let's be honest: it, camping,
1: hiking, doing any of that stuff with your wife—it's just a different mentality than if you were in the position I was
2: in and you were doing it with like eight dudes. Nah, who, it's not. It's not. My wife you still wouldn't have liked it. No, I, I, I'm not saying I, I did like camping with my wife. I did think that she was. Look, there are times where we're just walking on crooked rocks, I don't find any joy in that uphill on crooked rocks fuck that that's not fun to me
1: but
0: not
2: you're not supposed to find joy but my wife is like one of those dudes my wife is like a navy seal you don't understand i went camping with a navy seal and i wasn't going to quit either i I didn't want her to i was not going to ever stop like because i knew that she was trying to make me quit and i wasn't going to quit i'm too tough for her for those
1: that for all of you listening to this podcast you can't see lance but he's borderline tears right now no, no. Line,
2: <laughs> no but she's the one who's run like five marathons or whatever so no, out of nowhere of yeah she is she's a badass but so am i because she couldn't out hike me so whatever
1: well listen man i'm glad that you experienced that and i'm sorry that you guys had a bit of a domestic on the mountain but it sounds
2: no, it like just, you'll be it was fine for it, we just but, didn't talk on the way up But that halfway through, everything was fine. Now, she also likes to, let's just stay on the course. Let's just stay on the. I'm like, wait a minute. We can peel off over here through some woods. There's a little bit of a clearing. Like, I'm the true hiker, if you really want to know the truth, because I want to explore when I get there. And she's like, she's she's Franny, you know, rule follower. Like, "Uh, let's just stay right here on this course, and let's just keep walking. Like, no, for what? No, let's go explore. I'm an explorer. Look, I watched the show alone. Right. I know what bear scat looks like. I know what deer scat looks like. I know what hooves, like what type of hooves are what type of animals.
1: Do you think <laughs> that if you guys got like deserted out there, having watched three seasons of Alone, seven, you would, oh, <laughs> oh man, seven seasons of Alone, you would be in better position to
2: survive? Are you a survivalist after watching that show? Oh, yeah, 100%. I was even telling her, I'm like, you look, these berries right here, we could totally live on these berries. I was telling her I could set up traps to get rabbits and I could sense, you know, she was like, shut the fuck up. You couldn't do any of these things. And I said, you know what? If it gets bad, I can set up a campground. I've got, I've found, I found a clearing where I think we could set it up. I'll, I'll make an A frame, kind of an A frame yeah. hut. I just need a, I didn't have an axe to cut anything down with, but. Right, sure. I still have knowledge in my head of how they do this. I feel like I could have made a gill net if need be from different stuff. I often think
1: about if I would be good and even good enough to win Survivor. And I like to think I would. (laughs) Why are you
2: laughing? (laughs) Because you gave yourself number three (laughs) earlier just behind Navy SEALs. (laughs) I'm sure you would make yourself the favorite. Okay, yeah.
1: So there might be a false sense of confidence there. Um, however, no, I don't think I could win Win Survivor because I would have to I would either be the first out yeah. because I'd be so hangry that I just yeah. would lose my mind and I'd be like fuck it this isn't worth it and I would leave right. or I would get past the hanger and I'd be able, I think I'd be able to manipulate enough people. Uh, but I think that, that might get me in trouble. I think I'm in a good position because I would never be the most physically fit or the most like you got to be really physical to be able to help everybody. And, you know, nobody wants to oust the guy that's like really strong and can help you build and get all the stuff you need. I would never be that guy anyway. But, but then you also have to be careful because once you get towards the end, you got to get rid of that guy because he's too big of a threat. Yeah, I think I'd fall somewhere there in the middle, which might be good.
2: kind of under the radar. Do you think it went well? You know, my wife a little bit. Do you think it went well wherever I pick up a stick and I'd say something like, I think I could sharpen the edge of this and potentially get us a rabbit if I need to. If (laughs) everything goes wrong, she (laughs) would just say, oh, you think you could you get a rabbit? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I could get a rabbit, field dress it. I've seen alone. How do you field dress a rabbit? Walk us through it. Well, okay. So, I'm glad you asked cuz I just saw this last night on the episode uh of this current season. You cut it around the le- and this is from the editing. This is what I assume happens. You cut it around one of the the legs, the hoofs, the paw, the hoof. Mm-hmm. And then you uh and then you cut it, you know, up the body mm-hmm. and then you just peel the skin off, uh, you peel the fur off and then mm-hmm. you open it up and you take the guts out and stuff like that and then uh mm-hmm. Stick it on a stick, and then uh you know put it over your fire and hit it with a little bit of salt and pepper and maybe a little garlic powder if you have that you're oh. good,
1: oh God, you're carrying
2: garlic powder if I'm going on alone, I'm carrying garlic powder. That's one of my ten like what do you- ca- oh, I'm bringing uh an axe, a gill net, a bow and arrow, and some garlic powder. You know what that shows how confident I am. Is I, I want my you... meals to be delicious. is that what you get? You get ten things you get ten things. nobody has had the balls to bring you know, something to make their food taste better. But I would be that guy I'd say, you know what? I'm bringing Himalayan pink Himalayan salt, mm. a nice kosher salt, because I want to mm. season my meals properly, season my fish, my rabbit, and even my squirrels. I want to f- season them properly.
1: I Yeah. I, when I did some traveling to some countries that aren't known for their cuisine, I learned that if you put enough salt and pepper on just about anything, it's fine. It's not good. It's fine. So I do think that if you – now what I would do – see, this is already in my head. But what I, what I would do is I wouldn't bring salt and pepper because that's two things. I would pre-mix a salt and pepper.
2: Blend, right? yeah.
1: A blend. Maybe even put some garlic powder in there. And then that would be my one seasoning blend, my seasoning salt. And if, if I get 10 things and that's one of them, that's, that's not a bad – it's not a bad thing.
2: I see. I immediately think that I probably wouldn't do well on a loan, and you wouldn't do well on Survivor. The fact that we're having this conversation as though it's a viable option—you
1: mean what, viable that we could get on the show?
2: Viable that we would have a seasoning mix is one of our ten ingredients. One of our ten uh, things that we're bringing with us.
1: Well, on Survivor, I think you get to do one thing. I don't think you get to bring a. Yeah,
2: I think just one. Well, on a loan, you have to know what kind of berries and bushes and moss you can eat that won't kill you and a
1: guidebook a guidebook with with all the things that you can and can't eat that would be nice that would be one of my 10 that would be a guidebook would be great that'd (laughs) be fantastic also if you get yourself into a pinch you can always start a fire with the pages
2: yeah yeah i haven't seen anyone do that up to this point Um season eight I want to see them do a loan with regular people like us and see oh. how quickly someone gets killed by a predator.
1: I, if the f- industry doesn't pick up, I, I like, you know, I might reach out to my people and see what the, uh, uh what the application process is for, for loan.
2: Well, I can tell you this socially, social distancing is not a problem because they drop you off on a remote section of the Island and you see nobody. I, gonna look more into this you should look into it the winner yeah. gets
1: a million. Oh well that's that's a that's you know that's motivation enough
2: so speaking of motivation um the guy we have today bun b i'm so excited that you're gonna get a chance to talk to him i've talked to him a few times on the air off the air he's a guy that really does motivate me because he is He's one of these guys that you simply cannot pigeonhole. He is a very um, diverse personality. His musical tastes, his entertainment tastes. He is a food guy who knows the best places around the city and other cities around the country. Um, He's big into, obviously, the music scene. But I was blown away by what a cinephile he is. We can talk. I mean, we're going to be able to go in every direction, imaginable so if you are listening right now some of you will know him as as one of the members of ugk who was a legendary uh rap duo with pimp c and bun b from here in the uh the port arthur area and of course houston kind of just yeah houston kind of you know brought them in as well and then uh of course, Bun has been very, very big in terms of uh, the social justice movement and being a leader here in the Houston area. Uh, led a very peaceful march and rally here in Houston. Um, there's a lot to get to with Bun, and I'm really excited about finally catching up with him off script.
1: Let's do it. Here we go. Bun B, how are you, man?
0: Hey, what's going on, guys? I'm good. So far, so good.
1: Where are you right now? You're in a car.
0: Yes, I'm in the trunk, leaving Marshall's home.
1: You're in the trunk.
0: Truck in the <laughs> trunk.
1: <laughs> I was like, this is a bad start to a podcast. If you're going to record from the trunk.
0: Yeah, no. Nah. I don't mind my music playing from the trunk, but I wouldn't want a person to person be broadcasting from the trunk. That's Wait, the were point. you? Were you?
1: Were you that? Were you that guy at any point? Did you? Were you had like the loud ass? woofer in the trunk of your car where people could hear you from like a block and a half away?
0: Yeah. Yeah. At one point I give you, I give you a little, even deeper context. When I was in high school, I used to take like the, cause I grew up in the area with big home component stereos in the living room. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I remember I used to take the speakers out of the, out of the house and put them in the back seat of the car and <laughs> plug them up. In the car and use those as woofers before I can afford a sound system in my car. Oh,
2: did uh, yes,
0: we would, we would ride around on the weekends and my mom wouldn't would know that I was taking the big speakers out. Of I was going to say there's no, the big on.
2: there's no way your mom knew you were pulling the uh, the speakers out of the house. No way.
0: Oh no, absolutely not. She would have. She still. I may have to tell her that one day because I've never admitted that. I got all the stuff that I admitted I did as a kid, that's one of the things I never admitted. Which in the grand scheme of things that I did as a kid, I don't think that would be a deal breaker for her, Right. You know, if that's
1: that's as bad as it gets, then you're in good shape. I know I got two boys and if that's as bad as it gets, that's good.
2: Yeah. But I've got a, I've got a brother, a younger brother who is the biggest dry snitcher in the whole world. Like now, now he is. And he ratted me out. That's, he would tell my parents just in conversation. And it's not like what I did back then, sneaking out of the houses, you know, really any big deal, but he feels like he needs to tell my parents all of my business from back in the day, like anything that I did wrong back in high school. And to me, that just doesn't I don't know, for some reason it doesn't sit right with
0: me. Yeah, that's that is- just hate. That's just hating because you got away with shit that he probably didn't, <laughs> didn't get away with. And and you know, there's always that, you know, even though it's not really talked about all the time, there's always this argument of who's mom's favorite, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and it's
2: always, well, I shouldn't say it's always the oldest. Sometimes it is a baby.
0: No, no, it's usually the baby. I'll be honest. It's usually the baby because you know, you get a pass on her. Like I'm the youngest of my brothers. Right. So as a, as a little kid, I got away with a lot of stuff, but then on the, on the backside of it, like my brothers, everything that my brothers got um, like in high school years, I didn't get. So like my brothers all got cars in high school and stuff like that, but they, basically dropped the ball and fucked it up so my mom was like real big on me not having a car and not having certain things in high school because I was basically the the first one to kind of do everything right all my brothers kind of dropped the ball as they were growing up so she was like no I'm just going to restrict you from everything and just make sure that you focus on school so I mean I guess it worked I turned out okay but she was not happy with me being a rapper that's for sure
1: well, I was going to say, so she tells you to focus on school. What was, you know, as an actor, I, I remember the conversation at the dinner table when I told my parents, like when I actually said, this is what I'm going to do with my life um, versus, yes, they know I was doing it in school. and And I'm sure that they thought, you know, he's going to he's going to mess around with it a little bit. But there'll be a day where he finally realizes, you know, that's not a career path. And I remember that conversation with my parents do you remember having that conversation or was there a moment that you remember in your life where you were like, this is what I'm going to do.
0: This is one of the most vivid memories of my life because I remember, you know, telling my my mom that I wasn't going to go to college, that I was going to be a rapper, which in 91, that was not something you would aspire for your children. Right. You would want your children to aspire to because nowadays when I have concerts, I'll see parents with the kids, right? Like, parents taking twelve, thirteen, fourteen year old kids around, you know, actively supporting them um with their dream of being an artist. Um which I know a kid that opened up for me in like Norway, like maybe 10, 12 years ago. And his mother like brought him to open up for me. I'll get back to me in a minute. And um this kid is now like a major deal. His name's Leto. Um he's like a major deal. Now like he and Jaden Smith are best friends. And, He's produced a couple of songs for Jaden Smith and other people. And like he he came over as soon as he was old enough to leave. He moved to America on his own and like made his dreams come true. So, I mean, there's something to having a parent support you in, in what it is you want to do. But no, I didn't have that at all. My mom, I told my mom that my mom was like, well, here's the keys. We were going to give you the card when you graduated. You should do that in the trash. Here's your credit card. We were going to give that. And I told my mom all of this probably about two weeks before graduation. And she was like, well, we were going to give you a credit card. She cut it up in front of my face. Like everything <laughs> that they were going to give me um, for graduating high school, they basically took, took away from me. And they were like, you got one week after you graduate to get out of this house. Like, if you want to be a man, you got to get out of here and go, go do it. If you're not going to do what we want you to do, then you got to go live your own life. I moved our graduation night. I didn't even wait the whole week. I moved our graduation night.
1: Damn, that was like getting fired. Like, she gave you the two weeks, and you were like, hell no. I'm not taking the two no. weeks. I'm out.
0: I'm out of here, you know. And uh, it was rough because I had to go live with my dad, which was not exactly the life I wanted to live. That's a whole other podcast for that. But um, everything ended up working out for the best. Uh, my mom kind of recognizes who I've become. And that took a couple of years because my mom didn't have a frame of reference for rap music and stuff like that. So me telling her I was a rapper and all this stuff. And, she was like, no, they told me you sell drugs and you hang out over here and you're always at the car wash and all this kind of stuff. And I, I couldn't argue all of it, but I was like, well, yeah, but still, I am actually a rapper. But it wasn't until my mom saw me, my album was number one in Jet Magazine. And that's when everybody started calling my mom and telling her that my album was number one in Jet Magazine. And that's when people started actually, you know, like, Hey, yeah, no, he actually really is the rapper and he actually really does make music. And this was like six years after the fact. So, wow. Yeah. So it took wow. a while for, for her to even realize who I was, but my mom, Les, you probably, you, you, you will be surprised. My mom's first concert was when I rapped with the symphony a couple of years ago. No, what? That was her first concert. I never wanted her in that environment. Yeah, no, I guess that
2: makes some sense. I guess that makes some sense. And the symphony, that was, what a cool opportunity for you. And, you know, something that I always find interesting, I like when I don't know, this is just me. I like when I don't know what someone's going to say. I like when I don't know what someone's going to do. I don't like predictability. I don't like people who are easy to pigeonhole. I don't, I don't dislike them, but I prefer people who are very diverse in terms of their of who they are as a person, and that's one of the things I've always respected about you, is that people can't just try to put you in a put a label on you because you're way way more uh, than that label. And speaking of musically, I remember you and I were talking about Weezer. Like you're big into Weezer. T- talk about some of your musical influences outside of hip hop, outside of what people would already think about Bun B
0: um well first um i would say probably like punk rock um you know i'm a big punk rock fan uh i'm I really like like the dead kennedys that was like my entry point mm-hmm. into punk rock music um i was a big dead kennedys fan um well i don't think black flag would constitute punk rock right that might be a well movie. they're
2: considered yeah they're considered inside yeah. the genre
0: Okay, yeah. So yeah, that Black Flag for sure. Um, and then it, it kind of gets more alternative, like the Nirvanas. Um, Radiohead's a big group for me. Um, Blink-182, actually one of my favorite bands of all time. So just having a friendship and a relationship with Travis Barker is like a huge deal for me. Um, I'm trying to think, what other music is it that I listen to? Right now, my favorite band is Krungvin. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're from Houston. They're like the best band in the world, right?
1: And what, and what are they called?
0: Krungvin. The, 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 the name is tie. I think it's tie for Airplane. I want to so, check uh, that out. But yeah, they're, they're like, they're really, really amazing. What they is it about punk? Head, stuff like that. What the was energy. it about
2: punk? Is it the energy? Ad? Because you know what? My favorite documentaries are, Bun punk rock documentaries. I've watched punk documentaries from Chicago, the Washington scene, the New York scene, the London scene, and I like punk okay, like I like it okay, but to me it's some of the most intriguing documentaries because of the energy that was surrounding all of those movements.
0: Right. Oh, and Bad Brains. Obviously if we're going to talk punk and documentaries, right. we got to talk Bad Brains, right? Which is this, you know, and, and, and what always tripped me out about punk music was the intersection with punk music and reggae. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, cause that's kind of where ska comes from.
2: Like the right? boss Which,
0: Yeah, but even like Bad Brains did it a lot too. You know, Bad Brains went oh, yeah. from very traditional punk rock music to like even Roots reggae, right? Like, and so that it's been really even like if you look at like a no doubt, right? No doubt in its earliest inception, um, kind of teetered on that ska a little bit as well. Right. So but it's always like been crazy for me how like the skinhead movement and you know not the racial skinhead movement right because that's kind of a different aspect when you look at the punk music right um but how the skinheads and the rastas end up in the same space at the same time it's always been like intriguing to me you know i, yeah, I, I, I could I, never see it from a surface level you know
1: when when i think of punk you know i moved out from texas and i came and i had friends who lived out in like Manhattan Beach and we would go and it was all about that like California SoCal Beach Punk, the sublime. Um, you know, and there is such like a reggae feel to that. And I mean we go to we go to parties and they'd just be, you know, on the porch of the party, just, you know, on the beach, just jamming. And and it was it it's just such a different vibe to that feel on a beach than it is in a garage somewhere, you know. Um and it's Absolutely. it's it's real interesting to see how location in artists in location it influences the sound so much. That Southern California vibe versus you know a Midwest vibe or a New York vibe or a Southern Texas vibe. Um and I find that to be really fascinating in music.
0: Yeah and so so Sublime, I feel like it, it was Brad, right? Brad was the lead singer of Sublime, right? that's right yeah i just i feel like they would have been a huge group had he not od like the momentum that they had at the time was just crazy like that you know the the support they were getting from mtv at the time which for a very small very localized kind of band right they were they were getting major exposure so yes sublime. oh i don't know how i didn't talk about the misfits i don't know how we didn't have that oh yeah they were good good.
1: yeah and and Pennywise was always this like local, you know, Manhattan Beach band that, you know, was kind of like an underground, but then ended up, you know, getting a lot of love
2: nationally. Right. Do you guys think that, you know, Bun, you just mentioned MTV. One of the things that I think is ironic is that it's easier for people to be discovered than ever before, theoretically. And almost in some ways it's harder because the push, you don't have a centralized push like. You used to have certain magazines, Rolling Stone obviously was one of them. You had MTV, you had, you had BET. When I grew up, you know, I watched, you always watch your MTV raps and you watch Chris Thomas, the mayor on BET. Those are the two that we came up watching when we, when we wanted to watch hip hip hop. And then you watched 120 minutes to get your alternative music and you knew when 120 minutes was going to be on. It seems like now, because there's so many different platforms and there's not centralized platforms that getting that push sometimes can be a little bit random.
0: Yeah. You know, it's really just about like a tastemaker can make a career, right? Like somebody who, who maybe doesn't really have like the greatest music aesthetic to them personally or ideal ideologically. Right. But they're just into a certain band and they can create momentum around that band. Like I remember growing up in, and, you know, in the MTV era, waiting to see what Matt Penfield had to say about a band, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like that was the guy at MTV. That's that Headbangers everything Ball. Everything there was to know about music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he was just, he just knew everything about music in general, right? So, you know, having informed people like him, people like Chris Thomas, you know what I'm saying, with MTV, even with Dre and uh, Ed Lover on your MTV raps, you know, guys who, who knew the culture, right? And you could take them at the word. And it, it's, it's like a lot of things now. You have a lot of people in these power positions who really don't have a frame of reference for some of this stuff. Yet they're put in this position to basically dictate who gets exposure, who gets noticed, you know, and it's it's weird.
1: Yeah. But the other thing, too, is you've got, you know, back in the day there, there without social media, there was you went to MTV or you went to that magazine that wherever you were going to go to find out, you know, who was new. And, and, you know, who this person that you, you know, respected, who they liked, who was on their scene, who was on their radar. Now you got some dude who's just, you know, in his mom's basement and he can fire that thing out on Twitter and somehow it it gets some love. And you don't even, this guy doesn't have any, you know, not that he needs to have credentials, but, but I mean, it's just like, it's everywhere. It's flooded instead of like having those few people that you went to, to, to really find that new music.
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's pervasive across culture in general, too, right now. Like, one of the most influential people in sneaker culture, for example, I'm a big sneakerhead, yeah. and there's this guy named Brad Hall. Are you guys familiar with this guy?
2: No. I don't think so.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right? So this is this guy, Brad Hall. Um, Brad Hall is, like, the furthest from sneaker culture that you would look at, right? Like, he's not an athlete. You know, he's not like a lifestyle guy. He's the guy that tells you everything about the new Jordans, the new Yeezys, all of this stuff. And and granted, there's other people that have bigger followings than him. But like right now, like he's the face. Like he's the Darren Ravel of sneakers, if that makes any sense. I don't want to be the Darren Ravel of anything. That puts it into a better frame for you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just telling you how it is. You know, one of these guys that come out of nowhere and immediately becomes the face and the spokesperson. Or something, and you're like, "How did this guy become who he is?" And I don't have that much of a problem with Darren. He, no, you know, I just he, I went. He uh, he's, seems fairly well rounded.
1: Darren's good. I went to summer camp with Darren. I spent about ten years of my childhood with Darren Revelle, so uh, I I I go back. Oh, wow.
2: There. Yeah, yeah. So uh, wait, 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 wait. I'm looking up Brad Hall right now. This guy is the is the the influencer in the sneaker
0: game. He's one of them. He's one of the most known.
2: Right you would now. never think. I mean, I hate to, you know, to, to stereotype, but he doesn't look like he would be the face of a guy that would be at the forefront of the sneakerhead culture.
1: That's what Bun just said, look, he,
0: man. He, yeah. That's the thing. Like, he doesn't look like, first of all, he doesn't look like he would ever wear a pair of yeast. Right. right. Like, this is how influential he is. Like, Travis Scott's. Um, released a new sneaker probably about a month, maybe a month and a half ago. They sent this guy, the sneaker, and like all of these different accessories first and let him do the review of the sneaker first over like, you know, many reputable people like Trinidad James, who's a rapper. He's also got like a sneaker show on Complex. Joe LaPuma, he's like one of the guys at the forefront of sneaker culture. Um, And this, but Brad Hall is the guy that gets the exclusive and It's almost, you know, I keep trying to figure out if it's a parody account based on his (laughs) demeanor and the way he does everything because he's very calm. He's super reserved. And he's talking about these shoes that everyone else, when they talk about these shoes, they get very hyped. They get very excited, you know, and it's like, man, this is the new Jordan. and This is the colorway. And, you know, this is the shoe that Jordan wore when Jordan was doing this. And I can't believe they brought it back. Like there's a certain level of energy. And this guy's just like, so we have the new Jordan. Silhouette, I really like it. He'll have kids, like he and his kids will all be wearing like sweater vests. It's insane. Like he did it with the Travis shoe because the Travis shoe came in full family sizing, so he and his whole family were all wearing the shoe. It's just amazing and like what people gravitate to nowadays. And he's got like a really good following, and I think a lot of what he does is from a technical aspect, you know. But still, like he's one of the go-to guys. Like he's got hundreds of thousands of subscribers on YouTube. Like he's that guy. Wow.
1: So who what's your shoe? You're a sneakerhead. What's your number one?
0: Number one shoe for me, probably probably the Air Jordan um three. Like that's what I'm wearing right now. It's very comfortable. Um I'm a my foot is wide. So um technically I'm only a size 10 as far as length in the shoe, but I have a very wide foot. I'm flat footed and my foot's very wide. So I tend to have to wear like a 10 and a half in in shoes just to have enough room for my feet. And as much as I love the Jordan 1, it's just too slender of a silhouette for me. So that's why I tend to, like Jordan 1 is probably my favorite shoe, but it's not my favorite shoe to wear, right? It's my favorite looking shoe. Like you wear a pair of Jordan Ones, it's very hard to mess that up. But the Jordan 3 for me is my basic everyday shoe. Like if you see me somewhere out in the street, just like grocery shopping or like right now, you know, we left Marshalls, I'm at Academy. Um, I got on a Jordan three cause it's the most comfortable shoe for me. Like it was so, made for my foot. I feel like. All
2: right, so how many times do you actually wear? Cause you get shoes all the time. I follow you on Instagram. You always get different people are sending you this shoe, that shoe. How often, what's the most wears that a shoe will get?
0: Oh, somebody like a Jordan three, I'll wear it until it's unwearable. Okay. Like, so it's your like everyday shoes. Yeah. Yeah. It's my everyday shoe. Literally six out of seven days a week. I'll probably have that shoe on. Um, I have certain shoes that they're more limited. Like a, some of them are very limited. So I won't wear them that often because whenever I decide I want to pull them out, I want them to look still very fresh and new, as new as possible. So I have certain shoes that, like, for example, Jay-Z and, Jay-Z and Justin Timberlake went out on tour uh, a couple of years ago together. It was called Legends of the Summer. And so Jordan made sneakers for both of them to wear on the tour. But right before the the tour started, Jay-Z ended up signing like a multi-million dollar deal with Converse to only wear Converse on the tour. So they ended up with extra pairs of of the shoes for Jay-Z. So I ended up getting two of those from Jordan Brand. And so one of them I've only ever worn twice, the other one I've probably worn three times. But that's over like what, maybe five, six year period that I've only pulled those shoes out to actually put on. Now I show them all the time. Like when I do sneaker blogs and vlogs and stuff like that. And they'll ask me to pull out different shoes. Those are the shoes I tend to pull out. Like I have a pair of shoes that PJ Tucker doesn't have. Yeah, that's rare. Very, that's rare. That's very rare. Yeah, like, so So that's the shoe that I tend to pull out all the time. Like when I interviewed PJ uh, after one of the Rockets games, Rockets actually had like a sneakerhead night. Um, and so you, you bought a ticket. It got you, you got to, to watch the game. I think you got like a drink and some food. But then you also got to stay after the game to watch me interview PJ about sneakers. And so that's the shoe that I wore because it's the one shoe that I have in my collection that I <laughs> know he doesn't have. So it's like, and I know he's going to pull out some crazy, he pull out some insane stuff. But he's got a, a Yeezy sample uh, that was a Nike Yeezy that there's only like three pair in the world. And I think Yeezy's got one. I don't know who has two and he has three. And he paid like tens of thousands of dollars for that shoe. See, this is
2: what I want to know, Eric. I've I've been in the sports world here in Houston for over two decades now, and yet I'm the only motherfucker in this whole podcast that hasn't taken the first shot at a Rockets game or thrown a first pitch at an Astros
0: game. Both of you have done that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Did you make your
0: shot, Bun? I have not. I've done it twice. Uh, no, I've done it three times, I think. And uh, once with the old ownership, twice with the new ownership. And I I didn't airball.
1: Okay, that's good.
0: I can't I can't say that I didn't airball, uh, but I didn't make it either. But my whole thing is, I know I'm not an, an athlete, right? But I I don't want to biff this thing totally, right? <laughs> right? So I'm like I'm like if you're gonna throw a pitch, like it's got to make it to the plate. Doesn't have to be pretty. Yep. Um, I'll put it like this: if I shot basketballs the way I threw pitches, I'd probably be a lot better because I have a much better arch with a pitch than I do with a basketball shot.
1: All right. See my basketball shot, my basketball shot was more successful than my first pitch at the Astro game. My, uh, neither were, were, you know, terrible, but, but my, my, I made the hoop at the Rockets game. And I, and I think Colin McHugh was catching me at the Astro game and he framed it up pretty good. He reached out and snagged it before it, before it bounced uh so he 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 did me he did me a service there and framed me up pretty good when yeah.
0: i threw my pitch i signed the ball like i had no idea what was going on but so <laughs> i signed the ball they're like, they're like no dude they brought like the you know they brought the ink pen out and i took the ink pen before the catcher did and i signed the ball <laughs> and he was the and um it wasn't McHugh. um I still can remember because they were both yeah. like World Series games. It's, it's, yeah. I nice. can't remember exactly. I'd have to go home and look at the balls.
1: So let me while we're talking oh. about World Series, what uh what's your feeling on this season? Are you excited about it? Not excited about it? You know, the it's a little gimmicky, uh, but at no, least we got I'm, baseball I'm up back. For it.
0: Yeah, no, I'm up for it, man. I know it's and you know, it's gonna be look, we're the Astro. Right. So we've got a lot to prove. That's my whole thing. Like I'm I've been ready for baseball to start back for no other reason than to pull, you know, prove L.A. people wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. And I and, you know, I get a lot of flack. Like I have a friend that owns a clothing line out of L.A. called Undefeated. And Mm -hmm. he literally just made shirts that are like they basically says the Houston cheaters. That's him. Yeah, I've seen it.
1: Yeah, Bauer yeah. wore it. Bauer, uh, Trevor Bauer wore it to uh, spring training the other day.
0: Yeah, that's like a very good friend of mine that made that shirt, and that's like the only thing that we don't see eye to eye on in life mm-hmm. in general. Like we agree on pretty much everything in life except baseball. And originally, it was just like a, a sore spot for him when we beat them in the World Series. But now it's like a point of contention. Like this is one of those things that that we can't talk about because it gets, it gets very emotional. You know what I'm saying? Like, like he likes me, but he loves his Dodgers. You know well, you saying? could tell,
1: you could tell him straight up. The Dodgers were cheating that season too. So, uh, <laughs> so to hear, before, but I know he don't want to hear it, but it's going to come out. So you just tell him to sit tight. Oh, for a little that's, bit that'll be because, so good. Um, you know, let him have his, let him have his moment, let him chirp. And, uh, and then, we, we, you know, unfortunately we just cheated better than they did.
0: Yeah, I mean, and look, we, we understand baseball as a culture, right? So yep. I'm not gonna make a big deal out of it because I, nope. a lot of my friends in New York, a lot of my friends in New York were making a big deal about it. And then not as soon anymore. as that commissioner's report came out, I just hit them all up. Like, what happened? What what was that you were saying? Like, keep that same energy. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So, you know, it but I do I I would like to see you know everything on a on a fair playing field as fair as baseball allows itself to be. Um, yeah, and I, I would really love to see the Astros prove everybody wrong right now. You know,
2: who do you have? You and I spent like an hour, we had like a two hour phone call a couple of weeks ago and probably an hour and 20 minutes of it. We're talking movies. Who do you yes. have? Eric and I talk about movies. Eric and I talk about, um, streaming shows here on this podcast. Who do you have? Who's your go-to guy, your friend that you talk about movies or you get into, the culture of cinema with on a, on a regular basis? Questlove. Really? That's the guy.
0: Yeah. So that's kind of how we were introduced um, by mutual friend. Um, They were like, man, you're in the movies. You should talk to Bun B and Questlove was like Bun B's in the movies. Like, no, that's, that's an understatement. Like Bun B loves movies. And so that's kind of, that's how we met like a conversation over film and then that's pretty much it that's that's where we are like whenever you know oscar season comes up i'll send them over my list for you know the top five you know best film best best actor leading actor um supporting actors and whatnot and um we have a fairly good record I've, i've i think we're pretty much even as far as everything is concerned but like i i just you know i take it very very seriously like the art of movie making, right? Because I create art for a living, right? And there are things that I'm able to see and do that people who don't do what I do have no frame of reference. So like, not just even making songs, even like freestyling, right? Stuff, that kind of thing. But people are like, how do you do that? How do you paint that picture? And so for me, that's movie making, right? Like you see certain movies and you realize like, I have no idea what, what the process is because it's it's even easy to look at something like an ordinary people right which is just acting right it's not really about directorial skills even though it does take a good director to create the environment and allow people to really go in on their craft right and just kind of get out of the way but then like like i was i was thinking about the other day because i knew we were going to talk about movies and i tried to think like what was one of those movies that really blew my mind and i totally forgot about time band like that, I had no idea, right? Like for years, how they could have created time bandit, you know? Like, like just these. Like for one, it was a, the whole movie was centered around little people, right? Which was kind of movie. its own thing, yeah. Right, which was a, which was its own thing because up until then, little people in film were big players, side play people, right? The like the entire main cast of this movie was like a twelve-year-old kid had a group of little people but they had such great personalities They were such great actors and i didn't really realize how much acting had really been done by some of these guys when i was younger but then just the whole dynamic of traveling through time right and being around napoleon and being around um you know like the caesars and guys like that just i would just and even when they're on the ship and then the big guy comes out of like i had no idea of scaling for reference and that kind of stuff and and perspective you know so i just had no idea how they were able to do some of this and this is still in the, you know in in the earlier ages of special effects and that kind of thing but and the and the other thing is i had no idea of about monty python or any of that stuff right so that whole terry gilliam you know connection comes years after the fact you know and, um, uh, but yeah, just watching a movie like that, like how did they do? and I'm a kid at this time. I'm a teenager, right, so, and I felt the same way about the goonies as well, right, like watching the goonies, like trying to figure some of that stuff out, but time Bandits, which is just, just really just mind blowing as a film, and then I talked to you, of course, about two thousand and one, right, which is just if you ask somebody to remake that now they'd they'd find roadblocks, you know,
1: but it sounds like you really appreciate the that collaboration of a production design special effects post-production special effects director um and and how he's putting that story together from his end as, as a visionary as you know a filmmaker more so than maybe even the story itself
0: yeah absolutely like i i, I think i probably have a special place in my heart for the author, right the guy that has the singular vision of everything like I'm writing it this way. It needs to be shot this way. Um, I need this particular person to play this part, right? That kind of a thing. Um, You know that that kind of stuff just amazes me. You know, and and I get it because as a songwriter, right? Like I'll have that vision of, you know, like I've been in a position where my first solo album came up, and I'd never done a solo album before in my life, and uh, because most of the music for UGK had been produced by PMC and. Pimp did half of the writing and so forth and so on. So it was, a, you know, it wasn't all on me. So for my first solo album, I was like, how do I even start? You know, I didn't even really know exactly where to start. So I came up with an idea for a beat in my head. I was like, okay, this is the beat out. This is the first beat I want to rap to. And I called a producer, his name's KLC. And he didn't answer. So I left him a voice message. And I was like, yo, I need you to make me this beat. I need the beat to go like this. And I'm kind of like humming the beat and beatboxing the drum pattern for him, and then he calls me back and it's exactly the way I I said the beat on the voicemail. It's exactly the beat that he sent me. And I had an idea of like, if I I can get this beat made, I'm going to rap like this. And so once the beat was made, I was like, okay, well, I've got the beat, now I can write the song. And in my mind, the patterning of the song was already there. Like how I was going to balance the words against the beat was already there. I just kind of had to fill in the blank. And so, you know, I saw the whole song in my head before it was even recorded. And so for me, I guess that's on parallel with, you know, a director or somebody that says, well, I need to, I want to do this movie. Um, This is the story I want to tell. These are the guys that I want to tell these stories. Like, you know, you'll write and, and even even deeper than that, like I'll create certain songs and I'll be like, I need this guy to rap on this song with me or it's not going to add up. Like this vision takes this person participating on this song. Right? So I I I I get how people can look at music and be like I don't know how you guys came up with that that's like you guys made the perfect record or whatever. And and so when I look at our tours, guys who, you know, will write a script and they know they the script is gold, right? They know it's gold to the point where if I don't if they're like, look, if I don't get to make this movie, no one else gets to make it, right? And they're like, Well, this script is amazing. We could give it to Tony Scott. We could give it to, you know, um let Bruckheimer and these guys produce it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's the perfect action movie. I'm like, yeah, but these guys are gonna do it a certain way, and I feel like it needs to be shot, you know, one particular way. You know, so I could understand like a Tarantino holding on to certain to a Pulp Fiction and be like, No, I need to do, I need to make this movie because you guys are, you're going to mess it up in editing. You know, you're going to get people who are used to playing these characters. So it's, people are going to kind of, they'll have an idea of what's going to happen before it happens, right? Like like having John Travolta playing Vince Vega, right? That's the only way Pulp Fiction ends up being what it is. Having Bruce Willis as the boxer, that's the only way because you put people who are typically known for one thing into a scenario that you as a viewer are unaccustomed to seeing them in and then watching out thinking, whatever. And then watching how that plays out, right, is part of the fun and the magic of it all. And I think Quentin's kind of mastered that in terms of these these very personalized scripts and, and casting, right? Because casting, Eric, as I'm sure you know, it, to me, probably one of the most vital. Like, casting and production design kind of makes or breaks a move, right? And costumes as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, all of it. I mean, because I've worked on, you know, it, it... It is such a collaboration, and I think people who come to a set and see a movie being made, they they just can't fathom how many people are involved in making this work. And so fi- having a director who is willing and a filmmaker who is willing to say to a DP, a director of photography, like, I trust you to light this the way that my vision s- sees it, and I trust uh, this costume designer to be able to find the right wardrobe for these actors to be able to make this work. And I trust my hair and makeup team. And then of course, yes, like Pulp Fiction, one of my all time favorite movies, Tarantino's on my list, like of somebody I would kill to work with, Um, you know, to be able to make bold choices, which by the way, as we all know, you know, watching Hollywood movies isn't always the case, making that bold choice for that actor that, you know, doesn't seem like he's the right choice. I'm developing something right now. And I just threw something out as a casting choice for the studio. And they were, they were like, what, what are you talking about? And I was like, just let it sit for a minute because I'm telling you like, this is the kind of choice that is not down the fairway that can make or break it. And Travolta was that, I mean, Travolta, you know, he was that, he was that guy that was not down the fairway that, that, you know, was the, was the cherry on top on
0: that film. Right. Yeah. But you know, but but, but those kind of choices are like, I didn't mean to cut you off Lance, but those are the kind of choices that determine whether or not you get 12 million to make a movie or like 40 million. Right. They're like, look, if we put, because a lot of times when you go through studios and correct me, if I'm wrong, they're not really, they're, 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 they're taking the, the, the vision of the movie into consideration, but they're really thinking about ticket sales and, how do that's we sell it. this overseas? Right, like that's a big part. That's why certain people star in so many big budgeted movies because there's such an easy sell when it comes to overseas, particularly action films. Right.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. They actually have. I mean, every actor has like a foreign value, so they know exactly they can they can sell they can sell it overseas before the camera shoots a hits first shot. And they already, just based on who the lead is, they've already recouped their budget plus because of right. whatever it is. You know what I mean? Because you have Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, 15 years ago. And it's like, boom, I've got this much money. It doesn't matter. You know, the camera hadn't even rolled and I already got this much money. So, yes, absolutely. Um, but, but also, like, you know, I, while I like big tentpole movies, I find that it's the smaller independent movies, the ones that are made on a smaller budget that I appreciate so much more. Um, and I appreciate the storytelling more. Unfortunately, we're in a time right now where those aren't getting made as often, um, just because of the business. But, um, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's so many decisions are based based on bottom line, you know, and you have to have, you got to have the balls or the resume to be able to walk into the studio and say, this is what it's going to be, or I'm going to walk out. This is who the lead's going to be, or I'm going to walk out.
2: But let me ask you, doesn't that take, you just hit it. That that was going to be my question. If you've got something that you consider to be uh, a piece of art, and you know that maybe there's not going to be the groundswell of excitement for a certain topic of movie, isn't the job then to go get the right actor that will be the one that can turn the key to a whole project and get it jump started?
1: Yeah, for sure. But I mean, you look at you—you got to have the Netflix. balls to do that. You know what I mean? I mean, Matt Weiner when he was pitching Mad Men around town. First of all, a lot of people passed on Mad Men, but also he got the oppor- He got bites from other studios and networks, but AMC and, that were well more lucrative. But he knew by taking less money and, and believing in himself and rolling the dice on this show to go to AMC that had never done scripted television and most of these little networks, you know, that changed the game. You know, we've talked about that. He took less money, but he knew that by taking less money and going to AMC that had never done it before, he could make the last call on everything. And Lord knows he did. He walked down there and he would look at every prop and he would look at every word being spoken and he would look at every stitch of clothing you were wearing and every bit of hairspray that was going in your hair. And he had the final say on all of it. And that would not have happened had he taken the more lucrative deals to go to other networks. So that, you know, that, and that takes some, some, you know, chutzpah.
0: Yeah. I mean, we did that with Riding Dirty, Lance. Like with, with that album, that's the one album where we were like, Um, we didn't take a financial advance from the record company. We like forfeited the the upfront money for creative control because the first two albums we had done, our record company were like, you know, we, we got decent money upfront, but they were like, they had hands all over everything. And they were like, no, we don't want to, we don't want to pay for this sample. No, we don't want to pay for this feature and we don't want this and we don't want that. And so we knew um, if we were ever going to be able to, to explain ourselves in a way that we needed to, that we were going to have to compromise something. And so, in that case, it became money. We were like, "Look, we don't want any money upfront for this album. We just want to be able to make the album that we know we can make. And that to this day is still the Seminole UGK album, right? That's the one that 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 that's the first one that uh, went gold. It's still our highest selling album to date. It's the one that everyone goes to when they think of the group. but we would never have been able to make that movie. I mean, I'm sorry, make that album. Had we gone through the normal processes, like we had to compromise something for the art, but it ended up paying off, you know what I'm saying? So that's why I say I totally get it, you know, because Pulp Fiction didn't get as big a budget as it was supposed to get. That was a very minuscule budget in terms of of, of feature films, even with names like a Bruce Willis, because Bruce Willis isn't like the hero in Pulp Fiction. Right. You know, so it changes the dynamic of having a person like that in the movie in the in the first place. So, um, I mean, you look at like a Vin Diesel, like that's why Vin Diesel's still making these movies. And you're like, well, you know, I'm not a big Vin Diesel fan. It doesn't matter. Like when they see Vin Diesel's name attached to a film overseas, they buy the rights immediately. That's why but, there's nine uh, Fast and Furious, you know. But that, but Ben, uh, but Vin Diesel's
2: a guy that kind of, I always think of what could have been with Vin. Because I thought in Boiler Room and Saving Private Ryan he was really terrific and i feel like he could have had a different career but he decided to go down the path and look it was a lucrative path and maybe that was what he always wanted to do but getting back to what you said you know ultimately i guess everyone has that decision um when it comes to artists you either bet on yourself which takes balls and it and it takes some and it takes some level of um a lack of safety net or you go the safe route But if you do have the balls and you do believe in yourself and you do have a vision and that vision comes true, then you look at Tarantino now. Well, I mean, his Pulp Fiction then has opened the door for everything that he's done since then. And then you find actors that you're comfortable with. You start bringing some of the same actors back. You you probably hire some of the same people. I think it's a lot. You know what? It reminds me of. So Pharrell Williams, who's one of my favorites, um, on one of his albums, he has something called "Seeing Sounds." Uh, it's like an interlude where he talks about being a kid and he could see the music, and and he it, he does a great job of of uh, putting in context his ability at a young age to visualize music in the moving pieces. And I always feel like artists uh, who paint. I feel like musicians of all of all kinds of musicians. I don't care who they are. I feel like um, movie makers, TV makers, and then chefs. I think they're all very similar in that they have an idea of the big picture and they understand how to use the. They understand what the process looks like to build out the process that gets to the big picture, but the ability to see the big picture. Like the scene, the sounds, as Pharrell Williams talked about. If you don't have that, then you can't build. You can't build towards that if you don't already have that.
0: No, no, and you know I I always look at guitar players, right? Like you have guys that are in bands and they play chords and they make good good songs or whatever. And then you have guys that can speak in guitar, right? Carlos Santana, you know exactly. Jerry Clark Junior. These guys they can actually speak in guitar. And I feel like that's a different skill. Like you look at 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 um, then Chris Shepard—they're not just cooks. You know, they can they speak through food. Like they can get their point across through food. And I can kind of do that with with songwriting. You know, like I can like like right now as I'm talking to you guys, there are words consistently flowing through my head right now. Right, just waiting for the right place and the right time to come together. Like I may just be sitting in the house and then I'll have like three or four lines for a song come up in my head out of nowhere. And I'm like, man, I got to figure out how to remember that and put that in something somewhere. Like it's not even a full song. It's just a couple of lines. And I'm like, man, I need to say that at some point in my career. And they're flying around all the time. There's a line in, um, in heat, you know, in, in, uh, in the movie heat, there's the guy, uh, the guy in the wheelchair that De Niro always goes to, right. To get the work. He says something in that movie. He says, like, these ideas are always flying up in, the, flying around in the air. I'm paraphrasing it, obviously. But he's like, these ideas are always flying around. You just got to know how to reach up and grab them. And that's kind of, that's, that's how I operate musically. And I have to believe that that's how some of these guys operate in their art forms, right? Like, I imagine that guitar players hear chords or C chords, right? C notes kind of floating around. And then they have to Figure out you know, how to pull them down in which particular order in order to make it work. But I feel like these ideas, when, when you deal in art, in the, in the creation of art, you have these ideas floating around all the time. You just got to make sure to pick the right one at the right time and place it.
1: I will be out somewhere and I will see somebody. It could be like an Uber driver and the Uber driver is just a character man just to, for whatever reason and I'll hit my voice recorder and I'll just start a conversation and I have voice recorded memos on my phone with conversations with people whether it be in a coffee shop or Uber driver or a quick video just to hear them talk and try to get a little bit of it and then save it because I know that there's going to be a time where I can either use that or I want to build something around that um I would say for me like most characters I play I have somebody in mind that I've stolen from, um, you know, whether it be a ranch hand from, from going hunting when I was, you know, 12 at the ranch that I went hunting at, like that guy, you know, I've used him in characters and, and whoever it is, this is gold. Like this is, we got, we got to pocket this.
0: Yeah. I used to feel like that about cab drivers, right? Yeah. Like, um, when you take a cab in New York or you take a cab in, in boston or you take a cab in new orleans right these people are very of their environment and they're very unique to where they are in the world and so they don't usually talk like these people talk anywhere else they don't think how these people think anywhere else they don't see the world the same way and so i i used to always be fascinated by the worldview of cab drivers because of how many different people they come into contact with how how much of their lives they spend in these one-in-one situations and they're usually the ones that ask questions right you get a cab mm-hmm. hey where you from where you going how long are you in town for all that kind of stuff i usually to like to switch the dynamic on that kind of stuff and i saw some very very interesting people and you know guys have been driving cabs for 20 30 years and they tell you like man when i first started this city was this big and then they built this suburb and that suburb and now you got to constantly learn new streets and new avenues and all that kind of stuff man so it's, it's interesting to just I've always been like a student of people, right? Mm -hmm. I've always been like a student of people and like voices and acts. Like I do, I do a lot of accents. Like when I was little, I used to want to be Rich Little. I don't know if that makes any sense. I did too. (laughs) That's exactly, I would watch that over the Rich Little special over and
2: over. And I finally got to meet him at Magiano's here in Houston, like years ago. Somebody set it up when he was in town. And, uh, you know, I mean, I do imitations to this day, but it was, um, that was really cool getting to re- meet Rich Little because that was the only that was like the guy who could do imitations back in the day.
0: For me, it was Billy Crystal. I met Billy Crystal when we did the the um, when we did the uh, telethon a couple of years ago for Harvey. Billy Crystal was one of the people, and that was a big reasoning behind me doing it because I, I I basically modeled it after Comic Relief, you know, and uh, just meeting Billy Crystal. It took everything for me not to tell him that he looked marvelous. Like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's so good who else have you met along the way because you're such a fan of artists and who else have you met along the way that you were like man this is this is awesome he's he's inspiring
0: that's a good question because i actually during that telethon i had a chance to have a one-on-one conversation with oprah and i just wasn't ready for that mm. like i just wasn't in the in the space of isn't that the worst
2: like, feeling in there. the world that you blew your shot <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I, 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 I am not Lin-Manuel on that one. I definitely threw away my shot. <laughs> on that one. Um, I'm trying to think who would that have been? Me, Jamie Fox was really good. Uh, Will Smith, probably, probably Will Smith. Because Will's like, you know, you can look up the Will on so many different levels. Right. And um, I've seen him a couple of times and it always, Astonishes me that Will knows who I am when I see him, right? Like, yeah, he's a rapper and I'm a rapper and I, I get that, but he's also Will Smith, you know what I'm <laughs> right. saying? Like, like, I'm not walking up on the Fresh Prince, he's Will Smith, like, uh. world-renowned action movie star. he's always super personable. What's up? You know, last time we saw him was at, um, they let us on the set of Bad Boy 3 in Miami, we just happened to be in Miami, and a uh, friend of mine works as a PA. And um, he was like, yo, my guy's working the Will Smith movie. If you want to go over there, we went and talked to him. You know, you don't get a lot of time, but it's like, man, how is everything? You know, that kind of thing. And he he says just enough for you to realize that he's aware of who you are and where you are in the world. And he, he couldn't be a, a nicer guy. You know what I'm saying? Really couldn't be a nicer guy. Um, I'm trying to think. There's somebody that um, I'm missing. Tamer Hassan was a really, really... Really fun guy. I did gumball with Tamer before. Oh, Dolph Lundgren. Dolph really? Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren? Yeah,
2: Yes. So and, uh, did you, uh, you meet him at Gumball, gumball too? Gumball. Yes. Okay.
1: Wait, we got, we got a okay, pause go to, right there because go to gumball. gumball 3000, I, know, I, know. I mean this, what, how the, just, uh, I have so many questions for those who don't know. Gumball 3000 is a epic seven day rally it takes place in different parts of the world every year. Where basically like a hundred or so people drive the baddest cars there are, from Lambos to to Ferraris to you know Bugattis and and Koenigseggs and just the sickest cars, and you drive all day long, and and throughout on public roads throughout some of the most like scenic parts of the world. And then you party all night with these people. And then you get back in your car and you do it again. And you do that for seven days. That sounds awesome. I need you to just start at the beginning. And when you get to the end, stop, go.
0: Okay. So (laughs) I had a friend of mine. uh, We weren't even really close friends at the time. Uh, It's got Mike Malvern. He owns Frank's chop shop, Shop, which is a barbershop. Uh, There's one in New York. There's several in Japan, but uh, he calls me one day and I knew him from other guys. I didn't know him that well. He calls me. He's like, Hey man, have you ever heard of this thing? Gumball 3000? I'm like, no, I never heard of it. He's Like, well, I'm getting ready to do it. Uh, you seem like the kind of guy that even though I don't know you, well, it seems like I can, I can judge your character. And I think this would be something that, you know, would be fun for you to be a part of. And I was like, well, I never heard of, it. I don't know anything about it. He's like, just call Mugs." He tells me to call DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill. So I call Mugs. I'm like Muggs, This kid Mike just hit me. He's like, yeah, I know Mike. He's like, yeah, Mike just you know invited me to go do about three thousand. And Mugs was like, yo, homie. Um, that's how Muggs <laughs> starts. He's like, yo, homie. Um, I've been everywhere twice all around the world. Cypress sale. I've done everything you could you could do. There's nothing like this. If you can do it, do it. So I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Uh, I fly out to London. I bought a one way ticket because that year was London in New York. So like I buy a one way ticket to London. I get off the plane, get in the cab. I go to the hotel. First person I see is Exhibit. Now I don't know Exhibit personally. I'm aware of Exhibit. He's aware of me. She's so like, "Bumblee, like, what are you doing here?" I'm like, "I'm here for this Gumball thing." Like, you're doing Gumball. So he kind of sits me down. It kind of explains everything to me about what's going to happen. We're going to drive from city to city. We're going to, you know, drive all day. We're going to party all night. But you still don't really get the scope of it, right? You don't really understand what that means at the time and so we're there we, we register and the next day we're supposed to leave I get to the to the starting line for, to the grid and the guy that invited me doesn't have a car he's like <laughs> my guy flaked He's like my guy flaked on me I don't we don't have a car what and I'm like man this is crazy I just flew all the way to London and this dude doesn't have a car which is kind of what I get for doing something with a guy I didn't really know him like that but I got the cosign from us so I see mugs on the grid, mugs like, what's up? I'm like, yo, we don't have a car. Like, this this guy flaked out. So luckily, they were in a Porsche Cayenne. So they let us get in the Cayenne with them. And you're just, you're seeing a world in a way that you would never see the world before. Like, I've been to London. I've been to Amsterdam. I've been to a lot of these different countries and performed. But driving across, like, Eastern Europe and That kind of stuff. It's it's totally different, and you're in a caravan of people, right? So there's on average 100 to 120 cars every year, and they're all these like incredible Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Pagani's and Bugattis and all of this stuff. And then they'll have like a Volkswagen Bug mixed in or something, you know, very anti what most people are driving. And you meet these cool people from all over the world, and you realize that. Everybody that's doing this is like the captain of their particular industry, Mm -hmm. right? So everybody that's there's like, hey, what do you do? Oh, I'm I'm uh, over American Express for North America. Oh, wow, what do you do? Oh, I manage um, Green Day. Like I was like, I manage Green Day. And then you see Tony Hawk, and then you meet all these different. You like, you know, everybody here is like the shit at what they do. Like whatever it is they do, they're like the shit at what they do.
1: And that has to be I mean you spend all day in this in these awesome cars traveling through these awesome cityscapes and seeing the world in a totally different way having great conversations with the people you're in a car with but but to me the night when you're spending time and meeting these people and learning from them and and how they became successful and You know, just taking everything that you can from them that that to me seems like almost the best part.
0: Yeah. So what happens is is throughout the course of it, you'll see different guys. Like you'll see a guy in the elevator, you'll see a guy at the bar. You know what I'm saying? You'll see the guy at the gas station. You have a conversation, or you hear the music they're playing. Like, oh man! Like I remember the guys from Italy. We were traveling for like three days, and I never found a way to kind of you know, break the ice with them. And then like one morning we're getting ready to live with, they were, we were in this Italy and we're packing up the cards and they're playing Tupac, Mm -hmm. like loud as shit. Like they are, they are on it that morning. I'm like, Oh shit, y'all are Tupac fans. And it was crazy because it took people a couple of days to figure out who I was. It wasn't until I performed and did big pimping that guys even know who I was. Right. And so you, you find different people that you have a shared interest with. You kind of build off of that. And that eventually becomes who you drive with. So out of 120 cars, we're not all like in a single file line. Like right. different groups of guys are organizing within themselves. So like Team 48, Team 22, Team 107, and Team 69, all are from the same area, all kind of party the same, you know, different guys do different things. And so it's like, hey, so, hey, man, I'm going to leave with um, Team 43 is gonna go, but they're gonna stop here and do this. So like what happens is you end up in Europe with European, right? And so they're like, yo, when we get to Geneva, right? I'm gonna take you guys to this great place for lunch. You know, it's a place wow. that I go to all the time, that kind of stuff. I remember when we did America, uh, we had to stop in St. Louis and I had a friend set up like a, uh, a barbershop and have barbecue.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: Right? So so it's like all the guys that with me. like, look, when we get to St. Louis, you guys, we're not going to go where we're supposed to go for lunch. You guys follow me. I'm going to take you somewhere. You can get like some real St. Louis barbecue. And if anybody needs a haircut or a shave, we're going to have barbers there. So it's all these different experiences that happen. Like, you know, I remember um, guys going to, that was a big thing in Italy. Guys wanting to get like a shave. Um, Mm -hmm. Guys in in Russia wanted to go to a bathhouse. Mm-hmm. You know, like <laughs> all this different kind of crazy stuff, you know. Yeah. I remember my first time driving into France, guys were like, yo, we're gonna stop, we're gonna get some, we're gonna get some wine and some French bread. And I'm like, Okay, whatever. Like, I'm not a big wine guy, I'm not a big bread guy. But then you're there, you're in this little small town, like right off the French Alps, right? Babbling Creek running through the towns. Probably only four thousand people in the whole town. I get there, I realize. They've never probably seen a black man in this town before, so no, that's different for them. I've never been in a town like that, so it's different for me. And it's all these different. And you just kind of sit back and you realize, like, wow, I'm I'm literally in a French village on a mountainside, having a glass of wine and eating bread, like
1: with locals. Amazing. I mean, you and you with the local, you, you know, those are the opportunities that you just wouldn't normally get to have, and that's what well, makes it so
2: special. Hold up, yeah. Did you ever? Ex- I, I, I'm thinking about this coming. Full circle, Port Arthur, Texas, your mom's kicking you out of the house, cutting your credit card up in front of you, and then fast forward however many years, and you're in a little town in France <laughs> drinking wine and eating French bread and cheese and whatever else with these French drivers from Gumball 3000. Like, Does she fully appreciate the life that you were able or that you've been able to live the expanse of life outside of rap, forget it. I mean, rap opened the door for you to experience things that most people won't get a chance to experience.
0: No, I mean, and it's, it's very hard for her to understand that kind of thing. Like, like me and Queenie were just talking, we were looking at old pictures just yesterday, just yesterday about like, like Queenie tells her friends that, you know, I've, I traveled around the world in seven days and they're like, what do you mean? Like, well, you know, we flew from Houston to London Drove from London to Chantilly, France, to Milan, Italy, then to Bologna. Flew from Bologna, stopped in Kazakhstan to refuel the plane, then landed in Osaka. Drove from um, Osaka to Kyoto, Kyoto to a small little fishing village, and then from that village to Tokyo, and then flew back around. Like you, at that point, you've made a complete 360 around the planet. And we're just looking at these pictures and all these different places that we've gone to and things that we've seen. Like, you know, driving through Romania, through the mountains of Romania. You know, we had a gypsy witch come up to the car asking for money and just, like shit that you would never think you would do or see. Like I, I drove I drove across Russia, like a hundred miles an hour. Like most people I know will never get to go to Russia, right? I drove in through Finland and out through Estonia. Like, who gets to do that? <laughs> You're and jealous, I aren't on, you, Eric? And I'm and so
1: jealous, it, man. I did it I, on a like, tire
0: that had a leak. Like, I had a, a tire. I had gotten a leak in the tire. And we're on the Russian border. We don't have anywhere to, to get a spare tire from. So we literally had to get duct tape from one person, super glue from another person, air the tire up as much as we could, and then seal it with super glue and duct tape. And I drove that for like two hours across Russia until I got to St. Petersburg. Then when I got to St. Petersburg, I had to find a tire, but that's a whole other thing. Like, and that's the thing. Like, things happen all the time. We were just talking about how we caught a, we caught a flat in um, in the countryside of France. We had to put a donut on. The first place we could stop to get um, a tire was in Geneva. So we had to, you know, we we're passing by Lake Geneva. We stopped. We got a spare tire. We had lunch, and then we left to go to Zurich. Like, and you know, and I'm and I'm having lunch with Usher. Like who gets to do that type of shit? (laughs) And it was Tuesday, and that's just what you were doing. No, and it probably was like a Tuesday. No, the shit that I've seen, the places I've been, and the people I've met, I never would have thought. I didn't. I say it. You know, they interviewed me about it for Gumball, and I, I remember telling them like I didn't even know this existed. Right, like this whole idea of a bunch of rich people, because that's basically who it is, a bunch of rich or famous or both people driving these super expensive cars around the world, right? Like loading up the cars on a cargo plane, getting on a private chartered plane, flying from one country to another, jumping back in the cars. I've driven, like, I remember we landed in Scotland one year. They um, they let us drive the cars down the runway. of cool. At the airport. So, and the runway is like probably a, It's at least a quarter, half mile. And so basically, like, you know, this is your chance. You can go as fast as you want right here, right now. Kind of a thing for everybody. We go to racetracks around the world. I performed in Norway. I performed in St. Petersburg. I performed in Poland. I performed in Tokyo. Like, all these different places around the world, right?
2: What's the low-key best place? What's the low-key place that blew you away that you would say god wish everyone could experience this because you never would have believed how badass this was
0: tokyo easily really yep easy easy tokyo i mean from for me for years london was the best city like london is an amazing city right it's very full of culture um great food you know wonderful environment i I enjoy london every single time i go. Venice was super interesting. Like, I went to Venice. I actually got to go to dinner with Julian Schnabel. Yeah, you That's know what I'm huge. saying? Yeah, who actually went to Rice University for a couple of years?
2: Oh, I didn't so know that, that was.
0: So that was like our our talking about it. So he's with he's with his girlfriend, who ended up making a movie about her. Like, she wrote a book about her life as a Muslim woman. He ended up making the movie about it. I saw that Obama screened it at the White House. Like it was just all of this crazy shit. He was there doing this retrospective in the, in the um, Piazza, like a big art retrospective, like all kind of crazy shit. And I'm sitting there eating, we're a group of people eating dinner, but he's focused on me because I teach at Rice University and he's been to Rice University. So out of the 10 people at the table, He's talking to me constantly the whole time, like crazy shit, crazy shit. I've gotten to know Tony Hawk very well, you know, growing up in the eighties and that whole culture, punk rock skateboarding kind of went hand in hand. These are people that I can, I text and say, Hey man, what's up? How you guys doing? You know, how is everything out there? Crazy shit. You know, the things I've seen and people I've met, man, I never would have thought this would be my life.
2: You know, it's funny that you mentioned Julian because one of, um, one of the movies he did, which is, which is, I'm not going to say it's one of my favorite movies, but I really enjoy it, is Basquiat. And right. Jeffrey Wright as Basquiat is, I think, fucking phenomenal. I thought Jeffrey Wright was incredible in Basquiat, but that was really my first time to really uh, know who Basquiat was, to really get a sense of it. And the more I studied Basquiat, the more I went to, Um, museums and looked at his work and read about him. I think one of the coolest times getting back to the punk rock, let me pull it back to the punk rock time. I think, and this is really more new wave punk rock, but the era of the late seventies into early eighties in New York with Andy Warhol. And I know Madonna was a young person there. And you had, um, uh, you had Blondie was there and, and, uh, Jean Michel Basquiat, and you had all this crazy culture all coming together in one place in the early 80s in New York. I think if I could go back in time and be a fly on the wall, that might be the time.
0: Oh, man. I'd get to talk to, so I'm, I've been able to become really good friends with Fat Five Freddy. Right? Yeah.
2: And he was a big part so, of that too. So that scene. Fat Fat yeah. Freddy
0: was right there in that scene. I'm also good friends with the artist Futura, right? Who was, who Futura used to paint on stage with The Clash. While The Clash would perform, he used to paint on stage with Joe Strummer and those guys. It's crazy. Like he still has boom boxes that he painted for those guys back then. And just to hear them talk about that New York, right? And this entire artistic explosion of what was happening with CBGBs and you know, watching disco transition into rap, hip hop, watching the, this punk collective, all of this type of stuff, man. That, like, and that, that doesn't even include like the Studio Fifty Four and all that type of stuff, right? To hear people talk about that kind of shit is is ridiculous. And so, yeah, I feel like that that might have been like for America, right? It's cultural renaissance
2: mm-hmm. in and, many and
0: ways because of- that was covered
2: in um, in the evolution of hip hop. I thought they did a great job of covering when danceeteria became had hip hop. Tuesdays or Thursdays or whatever it is, or as rap Tuesdays or Thursdays. And that's the first experience. And it was a and it was a a melding. And this is what I love, is because I grew up a kind of a child of diversity with my musical tastes were very diverse and all this. And I thought that was awesome in the early 80s, where you had two groups, really three groups. You had punk and new wave and then hip hop all coming together. And they had total respect for each other as a culture. They didn't necessarily they kind of vibed, even if they didn't buy all the way in, there was a vibe between those groups at that
0: time. Well, it, it's all counterculture, right? Like, that's the right. whole beat, beat. Um, that's the bonding point between all three of those, right? That they're all forms of counterculture. They're all kind of operating from a fuck the system perspective, right? They're all going against, you know, they're very big on going against social norms, right? And so that's kind of how punk rock and hip hop and like street art all kind of come together. Keep in mind, this is the burgeoning um, gay scene too, right? All of these things are counterculture at that time, but they're all, and because of that, they all have to find these alternative spaces that allow them to be themselves. And so that's how many times all of these different groups of people wind up in the same place because what the lifestyle that they all live is not conducive to what's already out there, so they had to create spaces that allowed them to be who they were, right? And it'd just be like, "Fuck everything! Fuck these bougie ass people! Fuck you know! Fuck the police! Fuck society! You know! Fuck norms! You know! Fuck these prechosen, predestined roles that we all have to live and these rules that we all have to abide by. They're all anti that, and so that's how they all end up in these shared spaces with these shared experiences.
1: So. Taking exactly what you just said and bringing it, you know, what are we uh, fifty years forward? uh You've been a huge, you know, voice in everything that's going on right now. Uh, you know, uh, I know not just in Houston but nationally. Um, what is I, I want to just talk to you a little bit about what's going on in America right now, and um, sure. what you know for for people who are listening to this podcast that. Haven't heard you speak on it before. Just give you a chance to to speak on it a little bit with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, and, and the different lanes that we're trying to figure out right now in America between police brutality, systematic change that needs to happen and the inequalities within that the justice system. I mean, there's, there's a lot of shit we're trying to take care of right now. And, and it's getting very muddled under, I think, a lot of, uh, different things, uh, and through different voices. So I just want to give you a little bit of time to talk a little bit about that.
0: Well, I think race is the conversation that America has been avoiding for, for years, right? The idea of racial equality in America is not comfortable for people to have. And so America as a collective has been avoiding this conversation for far too long. I think what happened um, in the most recent instance, right, is that every American, no matter how much money you had or access or notoriety, whatever, we were all collectively at home together, right? Like, you know, everybody's quarantined, we're all at home. And so there's certain things we can't really avoid. And so that one common denominator for everyone is either television or social media, right? That's kind of where we're all um, communing with or getting our information from at one time. And, you know, for a lot of people, CNN and a lot of these things are usually in the background, right? After you come home, you start winding down, start figuring out something to eat, checking emails, all this kind of stuff after work, talking with the wife, the kids, it's usually background noise for the most part, right? Unless you basically have this devoted hour where at eight o'clock, you stop everything you're doing and you kind of tune in to either Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, whatever your choice is. And what happens is that all of these different outlets, right, whether it's cable television, whether it's social media, all of these outlets are all hitting you with the same image of George Floyd. Right. And so because you don't have a, a level of escapism at that point, like we're all kind of confronted with the same heinous act at the same time. Right. And so. You have to be a very special type of racist to not have any sympathy for what happened to George Floyd. Like you just have to be a very heartless, cold, like you're, you're a special type of person, right? You're almost subhuman in that, in that particular aspect. And so what happens is, is that everyone kind of is like the same way, oh my God, this is horrible, this is terrible, this shouldn't have happened. There's a collective agreement that what happened to him is wrong. And so once we all agree, or the majority of us agree that this is wrong, then we start to have to ask, we start to have to asking, well, is this isolated? Is this just one guy gone bad, right? And then you, people are like, no, this has been happening for years and years and years. So now you start getting bombarded with all of these different acts that have been caught on camera over the years, right? And so now you're like, okay, so this is, this is systemic. Like this is a real problem that's happening. Um, What can I do about it, right? Because you hear about different things and situations where interactions between the police and people go bad all the time. There's no video proof. The other, you know, the person is dead. And so people can kind of excuse it as well. We don't know what happened. We didn't see what happened. This guy, you know, probably was a bad person. And obviously the family is gonna say, no, this was a good guy. you are like, well, that's his family they're going to say that about him no matter what, you know, guys are on death row. Their mother still goes to visit them every week, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, but there's, there's no excuse to be made when you see the video, right? You see the entire interaction unfold before you. And then you start seeing different images, different images of Maude Arbery jogging in the street, you know? And so now you have to ask yourself, well, you know, what a, what can I do? Right. And then people, go off into their own particular base and like their own immediate circle and start having these conversations, right? And then, so then it becomes, you know, a white person sees it, they go back to their friends, and they're like, my God, did you see what the police did to the black man in in uh, Minnesota, right? And it's like, yeah, well, but we don't know. Well, obviously we know what happened. Like, well, well, we don't know what kind of criminal he had a record or whatever. Yeah, but they said he had a fake 20 Like, it's very hard to justify what happens to George Floyd in that interaction, right? And so now lines are being drawn. Like people are starting to realize like, yo, my, my, I like Tom, but Tom's actually a dick. Tom's, Tom's like really racist. I thought Tom just, you know, maybe didn't like certain black people or had bad interactions. And you realize Tom's actually racist. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like, like Tom's like a real like racist, like full on does not like black people at all. And so now you're like, well, you know, if, if I'm friends with Tom, how does that make me look? Right. Like, so then you have to be aware of well, how many of how, how many other people that I commune with are racist. On the flip side of that, you have black people. Right. And we have to find people amongst us like, yo, you see that what the cops did to George Floyd? man? What are we going to do? And then people are like, well, I don't know. What am I supposed to do? I can't beat the police. I can't do nothing about the police. Like, yeah, but we still have to stand up. We still have to fight against it. We still have to let it be known. Like, man, look, I got a good job. I got a good place. I finally got a nice house. You know, nobody's ever lived in the neighborhood that I live in, in my family. Nobody's ever gotten afforded this level of comfortable um, lifestyle that, that I have and I don't wanna mess it up. So you got people on, on both sides trying to figure out what's their place in this and what are they willing to sacrifice for the greater good. And so that's where we are right now in, in America and in the world as well. Because you look all around the world, there were different protests about it. And I mean, you look in London, there was an anti-racism rally which meant basically, well, I don't know if I'm saying it right, pro-racism, I guess is the best way to put it. It was a pro-racism rally about people who were like, yeah, we, we're good with racism. We don't have a problem with it. And fuck anybody who is against racism. Like that's how polarizing this issue is because we're finally kind of dealing, starting to deal with it head on, right? And so now you see people like, well, this is nothing new from the police. The police have been doing this to people of color for for decades, right? And so we need to now the conversation is we need to defund the police. The police are given they're already given a certain level of authority. They're given a gun. And like now they're getting millions of dollars to buy tear gas and riot shields. Like, What do you what do the police use tear gas for? The only use that a police officer has for tear gas is against the citizens. Right. So why are we paying for these different things that the police turn around and use against us? So that's where defund the police comes from. And it's a very, very deep conversation, right? So it goes into, um, you know, city council, all of these elected positions and people start looking at judges, different arrest records. We had the police situation here. Um, the raid recently, I can't think of the officer's name right now, but there was the raid that went bad where they ran in the wrong house and killed people.
2: Brianna Taylor.
0: No, no, no. Here in Houston. Oh, the one that was in Houston.
2: Yeah. The same
0: yeah. situation, I guess. Yeah, well, they run in the house, they run in the wrong house, they kill people. And then you find out that this person has a history of misconduct in the police department, right? Has all these different citations against them. Like, well, why is he even allowed to be a policeman? So we have all these different critiques now of policing policies. People starting to get more informed about that. They realize that the police, there's a, you know, because many people don't even know that there's a police officers' union, right? And that these police officers' union negotiate with the with the mayor's office to allow them to have declared immunity in certain cases and all these different privileges that are afforded to police in your community by your mayor. So now it's like, well, damn, well, I, I thought I liked this mayor. Like I voted for the mayor, right? The mayor that we have right now. And I realized that there's issues that I have with him based off what he's been able to give to the police officer's union. All of the meetings are confidential, everything's redacted. So you never get to see exactly everything that they negotiate, who's actually being negotiated for. So it just raises all of these different levels of concern for people who didn't really have an entry point into how cities operate, how police um how police are allowed to police the communities in which they serve. And so we're just having a, a, a conversation that is decades in the making, right? And and you know, I get it, right? There's there are many people who live a life now in 2020 that people in in 1950 or 1960 could never have imagined that they would be living. But just because you're allowed at certain levels of comfort doesn't speak to the black condition as a whole, right? So like I get to do gumball, I get to travel the world and hang with all these rich and famous people or whatever, but I come back home, I get pulled over here, I'm still a black man, right? No matter where I live, what kind of car I'm driving, I'm still held, still looked at a certain way. And so now we're in a position, okay, so what kind of country do we really want to live in? Do do we want to live in a country where I'm okay with this happening as long as it doesn't happen to me, right? And is that the message that we send to the young people, our children, and, you know, the impressionable people of our, in our lives? And we have to realize that if we don't have these tough conversations at home with our children about what the world is, what's right and what's wrong, someone else will.
2: Yeah. You know? And- so that's someone else, and, and this is my this is my biggest concern. Is that I feel like the conversations I have in person or on the phone with people who I know and like, um, who are different than me, who are like me, you know, it's so much different when you. I always tell as many people as I can. I told my son this because he started to get, and I talked to Bun about this. He started to get just horrified by everything that he was seeing on social media, social media, social media. You know, social media is going to put you in a really bad position. It's going to put you in a really bad place mentally. At some point, you have to pick up the phone and and call and, or talk to people. You'd love to do it face-to-face. Right now it's tougher. But talk to somebody who is not like you, who does not look like you. Have real conversations because when you have conversations, when you have real person-to-person, it's a much more – real experience. It's a much more um, enjoyable experience. When it's from the anonymity of social media, it invariably goes sideways. And then you end up feeling some type of way because of the things that you see and read from people who are in many times not even acting the way that they would. They're they're an uglier version of themselves than what you would get if you had a a person-to-person conversation. That's the one concern I have. My biggest concern, Bun and Eric, is that. You know, too many people are having the conversations. They're not conversations. You're just yelling into social media instead of having nuanced and difficult conversations. Which, you know, I think it's easier to to work through things when you have have conflict resolution with someone across the table from you in a manner of speaking.
1: Lance, you're speaking as if people want to have uncomfortable conversations. People, the majority of people don't want to have. Uncomfortable you're right. Conversations. You're They're right. Look into it. This is social media is great. Like you know, you're yelling into an echo chamber, and then everybody you follow, most people, I would say, probably ninety percent of the people you follow, agree with what you say, and you agree with what they say. So you're not changing anybody's fucking mind, and you're not having any sort of uncomfortable conversation. Um, you know, it's a so to your point there i mean i just don't think people want to if you want to you can seek it out um bun i think that um defund the police is tough for me to wrap my mind around and i don't know the language of defund the police uh is 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 difficult for me because now taking money until we can figure out a better system yes um because to me police officers are ill trained for what they're being asked to do. Um and police unions have too much power. So um you know a lot similar to teacher union. Let's not open that door. Let's just stay on this one. But but you know when you have a police union that's as strong as it is and protects officers who continually have strikes against them and don't have Third parties come in to moderate all of those, you know, these these um, infractions by these police. That's a problem. When you send a Navy SEAL overseas and he trains 18 months for a mission that lasts six weeks and he goes in there and and he can handle that uh, as precisely and delicately as he needs to do to get it done. But yet you have police officers that are asked day in, day out to go police communities that are oftentimes not theirs. And you train them for six weeks, maybe at a police academy, and you give them a minuscule amount of training in hand to hand combat, a minuscule amount of training in um in usage of their weapon system. Um, and then you give them next to zero training in any sort of mental and psychological, uh, dealing with mental and psychological uh, uh, citizens. So I don't know if that means we need to give more money to the police. Um, To me, it seems like you would want to give more money to the police so that we can figure out a better way to train these officers to go into these communities. But when I hear defund the police, it's really difficult for me because I think what that Le- and I'm just talking about the language. Defund the police; those three words scares right. me. That we now get, we get people that are even less equipped to go into these into these uh, communities and police them because we have no, to have police. We can't have no police. Yeah. that's not. A and then,
0: see, and so there's a difference between defund the police and dismantle the police because they're having both right. of these conversations right now. When it comes to training, right? The reality is is that there's no level of training that you can give a police officer who doesn't want to receive it. Correct. Right. There's no, there's nothing in training or a lack of training that had to do with George Floyd's death. Right. And even deeper than that. so if you look at the interaction with George Floyd and the police officers, right. The, the cop that's kneeling on his neck is the superior officer, right. He's the senior officer on the scene. The other guys, one of them had only been a cop for four days. He questions his senior officer in the midst of the interaction. Hey, shouldn't we let this guy up? Shouldn't we do this? The senior officer tells him no. So what happens is, you know, a, a, a cadet comes out of the academy. They've been given the, the training um, to patrol the trees. And keep in mind, the training is inadequate in that sense because you have to study longer to be a barber than you do to be a police officer. Right. Like you have to you have to study three to four times as long to become a licensed barber than to become a licensed police officer. But even beyond that, let's say you get the sensitivity training. Let's say you get the interaction training, right? You have all of these different things. And then, but when you're allowed to patrol the streets, you have to go with a senior officer. And so that senior officer is going to tell you how these interactions should go. Hey, man, you've never been in this neighborhood. These are some wild dudes. You can't come in here looking weak. You got to be strong. You got to be aggressive or they're going to run over you. That's the kind of things that's being told to the junior officer by the senior officer. The junior officer sees how the senior officer interacts in that community and assumes that's the way it's supposed to be done. So when something bad does happen in the interaction and the junior officer questions the senior officer, the senior officer will tell them, No, this is trust me, I've done this before. This is how this goes. And you're less likely to argue that. Now, when we talk about defunding the police, nobody's taking police cars away. Nobody's taking guns away. Nobody's hindering training. What they're actually doing is trying to set up a system that takes away, let's say domestic uh, domestic abuse calls from police, mental health calls, which is a lot of the time that police officers have to deal with stuff. This is what, it's, it's all of this unnecessary stuff that we have told the police that they have to do outside of dealing with criminals. That's where overtime and all this stuff comes in, right? And that's where a lot of this extra funding for the police goes to to pay for overtime for the cops that are on duty. In Houston, Texas alone, over, a, the four-day weekend that we did, the, the four-day week that we did the the rally, Lance, mm-hmm. there was $21 million in overtime. Wow. Was there really? Not to mention a $20 million increase in overtime in the new police budget. So there are, and look, I, I, I don't agree that we don't need police, right? But I do feel that we ask police to do a lot of things that police shouldn't be doing. There are a lot of interactions that the police have to deal with that could be handled by licensed professionals, particularly when it comes with mental health. Right. Mental health, people with mental health issues are the highest rearrest group in this country. So they're they're the ones that the police have to constantly go back and see over and over and over again. Right. So if there is a system in place that sends licensed mental health uh, counselors to those scenes, right? Where it's not a, where it's not a mental illness patient with a knife or blunt object, right? Just somebody that, you know, schizophrenic or manic or somebody having a bad day, hasn't taken their medication or something like that. That's something that we can take the police out of the equation for, right? When it's just a couple that's arguing where it hasn't gotten physical, right? But the neighbors hear the husband and wife yelling back and forth at each other, which I'm married, Lance is married. We know these, these things happen sometimes right? As long as there's not a level of physicality involved, there's no need for the police in that situation. Um, and so that's the biggest problem when we talk about defunding the police. There are asked, And when we talk about the communities that they have to police, right? If we take some of that money that's been allotted to the police and spend it in these communities, it gives them better opportunities for education, better opportunities um, for upward mobility, right? Helps to clean up some of these neighborhoods. But once that happens, once, the, the, um, once there's more opportunities for jobs, once there's better uh, education, the crime rate absolutely decreases. If you don't believe me, look at River Oaks. People talk, you know, talk about how, you know, you don't really need police in a community like River Oaks. It's because where's the stress? Like those people have good jobs, right? They have access to the education. So there's less of a need to, to, to commit a crime in order to, to sustain yourself. Right. So that's when we talk about defunding the police. It's about taking like the, the police department in Houston was given a billion dollars in this new budget, like a billion dollars. Right. Some of that money, you could take a hundred million dollars from that billion dollars and completely um, change third world forever. Right. You could change the community of third Ward forever. You could change Fifth Ward forever with that kind of money. Right, You can change the level of education that's afforded to the children in those communities. You can change the, uh, the level of training that people have for certain trades. You can build trade schools in those communities. Um, you can change the housing situation in those communities, right? Um, you can help create businesses that would hire people in those communities. And when you have better opportunities for educational equality, for financial equality, and in these communities, there's a less likelihood of there being crime in those communities, which takes the police out of those communities and the numbers that they have to be in with these interactions that tend to go bad. And so that's where defund the police as, 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 a, as an argument in America is right now. Now, dismantling the police is, is a totally different situation because when you dismantle the police, you're basically replacing the police, right? And the power and the, the, the problem is the authority. in in particular. So when you take out one form of authority or you take the power away and authority away from one group and give it to another group, you have to be careful about about that, right? Because if you say, okay, these guys with guns can't patrol my neighborhood, but these guys with guns can. There's always room for corruption where power and authority is implemented. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I don't agree with dismantling the police. But I do feel that having people, police communities that they are not from, they don't have a frame of reference for is a large part of the problem as well.
1: Very well said. And I agree with, I agree with you there. And I, you know, I just think it's, I think language is so important and language is often misunderstood. And so, you know, well, just like black
0: lives matter. When people hear black lives matter, there's a group of people that assume that means your life means more than mine. That's correct. And, uh, And if you're not willing to sit down and have a conversation with people and let them explain their viewpoint, you're going to be stuck in your opinion. That's why when people hear "defund the police," they get antsy about it, right? Because right. they think "defund the police" means get rid of the police. But you have to Nothing listen. Nothing could be further than the truth, right? Yeah. And, and the reason that the reason that we come to these roadblocks is because no one's willing to sit and hear the other person out. It's okay. It's okay to disagree. That's the yes. problem that people have. People don't want to disagree with other people. Conflict is not the natural position for a human being. Right. Mm-hmm. Human beings try for, on the average, human beings try to avoid conflict as much as possible, which is why we tend to avoid uncomfortable conversations. I... But then something something just just crazy happens. And now we have to address the elephant in the room. And we've let some of these things go on too far.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, the first thing that he, it, police unions need to be dismantled, first of all. Um, you know, another thing that needs to happen, there has to be um, an independent board that the city council has that that they can use as a backstop to protect its its citizens from cops, you know, that have 17 fucking priors like that. Just, and we that have can't, that.
0: And that can't that's the happen. Thing. We have those, but a lot of them that operate in America don't have subpoena power. And that's the that's the biggest hurdle. Right. So but that's through the police board,
1: union, correct? I mean, they don't no. have that because the police union has the lobby power and and the money behind it to, to take that from them. Is that correct? See,
0: that's a big misconception. Okay. A mayor, a mayor of a city, depending on mm-hmm. the state laws and the law, like in mm-hmm. in, in Houston, mm-hmm. um, Mayor Turner didn't have to negotiate that with the police officers union. He could sign an executive order, which he did, that gives subpoena power to those. Boards. The problem is who's on the board, right? And 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 like they just had a, um, a city hall meeting, and there's a person that's on that particular board in Houston. And when different different questions were posed to them about particular police interactions in the city, they didn't have the foggiest clue of what was going on. And so you have to have people who don't have any these connections to police officers at all, right? People who aren't looking to run for public office. And so. It's the independent review board with subpoena power is another step, right? Because it takes the ability to prosecute, to bring police up on charges out of the hands of the police officers, the police officers union, and in certain cases, City Hall. Right? And so and so that's, that's 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 something that's happening, but it doesn't happen everywhere. Because without subpoena power, you can't see the evidence in the case in order to come to a proper conclusion. You need subpoena power to see. Um, body cameras to see dashboard cameras to see exactly every angle of what the interaction was and so an independent review board without subpoena power is basically community watch they don't have right. nothing they can do about it
1: okay so that's just a moot point um right well that's that's interesting i i i do think uh and i'd like to know your feeling on this community policing you know uh, police officers that can go into communities of people that look like them, you know, black and brown communities with black and brown police officers who understand the communities that they're dealing with better than someone from another community that doesn't have, they don't know that cop. They don't know that police officer. They don't understand uh, the culture of that given police officer. And that might lend itself. And maybe one of the problems is there's not enough Black, brown, Latino uh, recruits, which is something else we have to deal with. But uh, you know, I think that that also would help with the interactions between citizens and police officers.
0: Yes, it would help, but it would it would help, but it wouldn't eliminate the problem. It still wouldn't eliminate the problem. If you look at a lot of the protesting, like for example, there was a, a couple in Atlanta who were in their car. They were trying to leave an area where protests were happening, and they didn't leave. Fast enough, so the cops started breaking windows and snatching people out of cars and taking them to jail. And the majority of officers in that interaction were black. So just by having a black officer on the scene where black people are involved does not eliminate the possibility for police brutality, right? So all incidents between police and the citizens of the community they police are not always built around racism, it's the power issue, it's the authority issue that's given to police officers and so a big problem about that is is who is allowed to come into what scenario and what's done in that issue right so just getting just making sure look taking all the white police officers out of black communities and brown communities does not end police brutality right Yeah, and and all the white police officers
1: aren't aren't racist and aren't bad people either so you know i mean that's those are you know Uh, So I don't think that's the answer.
0: But I think the problem is, is that, as you said, the police officers union, which looks to absolve any police officer for any kind of infraction posed against them right in the line of duty. And so the dismantling of the police officers union, which has far too much power in this country, Mm -hmm. is one of the biggest lobbying groups in America. Um, They're like, for example, they're the ones that tend to put up the bail when police officers shoot, assault, or kill people in the line of duty. It's usually a police officer's union that puts up the bail money that pays for the attorney and does all of that kind of stuff. Right? And and they're the biggest hindrance between the community and the police, right? Because they're the ones that get to come in the middle and they're the ones that have the power to make city hall, local state, and um, representatives or senators make sure that certain legislation doesn't get passed, right? There are a couple of bills that have been trying to that uh, a state senator here in Houston have been trying to get out of committee, and these things never even make it out of committee. you I mean, to get a vote on the floor, right? And because of and the reasoning behind that is because the police officers' union carries so much weight, and they come in and say, "Hey, if you guys do this, even with a, a, a mayor like the mayor of Houston needs the police, right? He needs to have a good relationship with the police department because there are times where the police are necessary; they're needed, right? They're they're there are things that they do that provide a good service to the citizens of their community, but when there are things that are not good for the community happening from the police, the union are not is not going to correct that. The union is going to look for for them to be absolved of it that's the that's their job right is that's the whole idea of the police officers' union is to keep the city off of the back of police officers, no matter what the incident is right? Whether they're right or whether they're wrong in it, they, they just want this officer to be absolved of this crime and to get back on duty. And so they're, they're the biggest problem. When their union is strong, it's extremely well-funded, and they carry a lot of power. And it's not going to be the easiest thing to tear down. Now, what you have to have is a mayor that's willing to say, okay, enough is enough. You guys have been afforded too many liberties. And we've got to ha- we've got to pull b- push back. But then when the when the mayor needs the police to you know cover some kind of city festival or all different things, that's when they they get pushback for that kind of stuff. Not easy being mayor of a city. I get asked to run for mayor in Houston all the time. And I know. The more I learn about uh, the more I learn about the kind of shit that a mayor has to deal with. I'm not <laughs> sure if that's the job I want. You know we
2: we call Bun, Bun the Bun unofficial. Bean. Yeah, we call him the unofficial mayor of Houston all the time, but now I'm going to have to. It's more like the ambassador of Houston. I think that's a safer. That's a safer role. You get to spend more time in restaurants. Well, when COVID
0: is finally. Right. I mean, at this at the same time, Lance, like, do I do I? Is that something I would actively you know push for? Not really sure about that. But if I know I could beat somebody like Tony Busby, who would be a terrible mayor for this city, right? Like. Like, what do you do then when you know that you're in a position to do that job better than this person and you have the ability to actually beat this person in an open election? You know, well, I can say this where I'm at right now.
2: I mean, you I'm not saying that you couldn't do something like that. (laughs) This is what I do find interesting. You you walk in a circle that um, your circle is is I don't know how tight your inner circle is but your circle is more expansive than most people's. And I think anybody who's listened to this podcast obviously knows that by now, but I think what, I think what's also interesting is that because your circle is so expansive, um, you have to be able to traverse through different types of people, young, old, rich, poor, middle-class, different, you have so many different people. And so how challenging is that for you to go through not just these issues that are currently right here in our face, but just being able to, do you feel blessed that you have the ability to interact with so many different people? Or do you find yourself having to put on different types of faces for, you know, for, okay, these are people I knew from back in Port Arthur, and this is a group that I'm going to the symphony with. I mean, you, you live a different life than a lot of people.
0: Well, there's a certain way that you have to communicate with certain people so that they understand exactly where you're coming from. But I still have to be guided by my moral compass or else it doesn't work. Because at some point you compromise yourself in front of one group and then you have no validity with another group, you know. And so, yes, I do know how to speak to the people in the room that I'm in. But at the same time, I still have to be true to myself. And if people in these rooms can't handle that, that's on them because I'm in the room. I'm not leaving the room just because you're not comfortable. You know what I'm saying, and so but that, but that's easy for me to traverse as a citizen, right when you become an elected official, it gets tricky because you become holding to certain people you know
1: it does get tricky i I guess I just kind of go back to what you said uh an hour and twenty minutes ago and i appreciate your, <laughs> i appreciate I appreciate your time I really do and we'll, we won't take too much more of it but uh but remember when you were uh you guys were doing riding dirty. And, uh, you had the offer for more money, but you said, no, no, we're going to gamble on ourselves here. You know, maybe, maybe mayor Bun B says, I know I'm not going to get liked by the votes from the police union. And I know I'm not going to get votes from this group, but, uh, but you know what, I'm going to gamble on myself here and, and I'm going to, I think I could make the city better for it. So, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's what it takes, you know, and then, and then you can do what you want. and. And hopefully it, uh, the city's stronger for it.
0: Yeah. The only thing is, is that when, you know, you, sh- you should never run for an elected position because you can okay. I agree You there. should run for, you should run for a position because that's, um, that's what you want to do. Like, cause then being mayor is a thankless job.
1: Bun B, you're the man, dude.
0: Oh man. Thank you guys for having me. But we got to yeah. have like just one time where we talking is just like just movies.
1: Let's uh, about, let's do it. I'm going to be in Houston for like a month towards the end of the year. Let's go grab some beers and talk movies.
0: Yeah, yeah. We don't have to do it on camera on the microphone. No, you're, you're man. Let's just,
1: I just want to sit. Yeah, let's wrap it out. Speaking of, I've played a campaign manager on TV. So when the day comes, I know my shit.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm going to need one too. If I decide yeah, to run, I'm definitely going to need somebody with some experience.
2: There wow. you go. Well, well, he doesn't fake have experience. experience. I don't have actual he experience, also played just TV a fucking, experience. He
0: played a I Navy SEAL, too, and he's <laughs> not a Navy SEAL. I don't have any active experience <laughs> either. We just got to feel it out.
2: Oh, either it. did Trump, and look where he is.
0: He's a president. <laughs> exactly. You don't have to have experience.
2: Uh, but I really
1: appreciate it, man. It's so good to do this, and uh, thanks for your time. Tell Queenie sorry.
0: That's right, all good. Thank you guys so much for having me, man. I really, good really shit, enjoyed bun. this conversation. I'll be here anytime you need me, guys. Let me know.
1: Okay, that was awesome. Uh, Thanks to the usual suspects, the friends of the show, Blackland Distillery. You can find gin, bourbon, rye, vodka, all at blacklandfw.com. That's FW for Fort Worth. Anthem Agency, the incredibly talented Tony Moles handles all our artwork. That's Tony Moles over at Anthem Agency, A N T H M Agency.com, and our music by Josh Cook, Here Lies See you all next week. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends.